0: All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with goodranchers.com. That's right. If you go on to GoodRanchers and you use promo code NIC and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breasts, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free to get that deal and let's get on with the show. So what are the freest countries in the world and how do you even categorize that? I mean, obviously there's a lot of opinions with respect to political freedom, economic freedom, personal freedom. Well, we've looked at a couple of indexes by the Fraser Institute, by the Cato Institute, by the Heritage Foundation to go ahead and look at these numbers over time in order to bring you something of a comprehensive list of the five freest countries in the world. Not to mention the fact that I think we're going to have a little bit, we're going to take some issues with uh, some of the countries that are listed as the most free. Also, we're going to talk about where the United States falls on this list, along with where where it fell on this list a decade ago versus where it is now. Some of the disturbing trends that have taken place. But as always, there's some good news. There's some good news that the United States can in fact pull this off and in part, It's because of which countries actually the freest ranked as the freest in the world today. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. No matter where you are watching today's
1: live stream, we would love to take your questions. If you have a question, please start your comment off with question and then ask your question. And that way we can see it and make sure we get to it. If you haven't already, head down to the link in the description to join our community chat. There's a lot of fun stuff going on there. We'll be discussing this topic right after the show.
0: And thank you so much for joining us. All right, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates. But other than that, a reasonably good guy. With me as always, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees.
2: You said it right this time. (laughs) Hello, everyone. (laughs)
0: <laughs> then we have Christian Hines, our political <laughs> prognosticator and resident historian. Hey, how you doing? And then our producer of producers, Nicholas wow, Hamilton. Wow, you not going to answer my question? No, no. I'm not. <laughs> Nicholas Hamilton, the good, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Thank you, Nick. All right, let's get right into it. Nothing, nothing too super controversial today uh, on the episode. At least give us some time. We can probably find something. But we just wanted to go through this, this idea because there's this interesting report that the Cato and the Fraser Institute put out called the Index of Human Freedom. There's also another report that the Heritage Foundation puts out called the Index of Economic Freedom. And this is something I've tracked for several years now. I've always found it really interesting. Heritage Foundation's website on this is actually super easy to use. Cato and Frazier, not so much. Cato, love you guys, but you got to up your game on, on interactive websites, especially with this sort of data. So what we decided to do was go through this and look at, okay, what makes a free country because there's a there's a huge disagreement right now. It used to be that most people kind of agreed on what constituted being a free country. And typically, when people on the right talk about freedom, we're generally talking about freedom from oppression, freedom from government oppression, free, or, or being able to live in an environment where um, you could say you could extend it to living in an environment where you're not living in constant fear of somebody else coming in and taking your stuff, right? That, that's how we define freedom. The left in the progressive movement defines freedom a little bit differently, and by a little bit, I mean a lot of bit, right? They generally define it as being free from want. In fact, uh, FDR talked about this in his Four Freedoms, and and that was one of the things he listed was being free from want, which conservatives consider to be kind of absurd. So when we looked at this, we said, all right, what what are some institutions or organizations that are going to rank? Human freedom in a way that we think actually makes sense with our worldview, and that we can have a discussion about the way that progressives might rank freedom. Because again, they include a bunch of other things that that we don't. They include a lot of things which are known as positive rights. So when you talk about you know freedom to healthcare, freedom to housing, freedom to food, right? We have a problem with that because how can you possibly have an inherent right, an inherent or God given right, to products and services? because to have a, an inherent right to products and services mean that somebody else is obligated to provide them in some way right whereas negative rights focus focus primarily on preventing the government or others from being able to infringe on your god-given rights right so you have you having the freedom of uh, freedom of speech or freedom of religion doesn't require anyone to provide you with something right this, we we get this all the time where where the left will come out and say well how can you truly be free if you have to you know work to survive or work to or you have to go into debt in order to pay for for health care bills and then we'll say oh okay well then if that's your definition of freedom then the government owes me a firearm right because the second amendment guarantees my right to keep and bear arms how can I keep and bear arms if the government doesn't provide me a firearm. And they'll instantly shoot back and be like, what? That's not what it means. It means you have the right to have a firearm if you want one. It doesn't mean that we have to provide one through tax dollars. Oh, oh, is that how rights work? Yes, exactly. Right. You have a right to pursue happiness, right? You have a right to live your life the way you want, provided you're not infringing on the rights of others to do the same, but you can't have a right to other people's property. You can't have a right to their labor, And the only way you can have a right to products and services in the way that they're talking about it is that if you do have a right to the property or labor of other people, and last time I checked, we kind of fought a big war over this. United States. Not allowed to do that. All right. So let's go through and look at the executive summary here from the Human Freedom Index. This is our version of defining the terms. So everyone kind of knows where we're coming from. All right. So they look at these. They they said this eighth annual index uses 83 distinct indicators of personal economic freedom in the following areas. Rule of law, security and safety, movement, religion, association, assembly, and civil society, expression and information, relationships, size of government, legal system and property rights, sound money, freedom to trade internationally, and regulation. So those are the broad categories. And then you're going to see as we go through and we kind of ask some questions about like, okay, why did this country rank so high? We'll look at some of the areas where they ranked lower, where they ranked higher. And if we need any more clarification on why they ranked it a particular way, we can do that. Now, I'm just going to say right off the bat, I don't necessarily agree with everything that they came up with as, as being you know, uh, as comprehensive as I would have liked it. All right, But with that said, these are the terms that we're working with right now. Let's go ahead and go to the fifth freest country in the world. And that's right. It is Ireland. Ireland ranks fifth in the world. So it ranks fourth out of 165 countries on personal freedom. And it ranks 10th on economic freedom. So, One of the things that's interesting about this has been actually watching the trend that Ireland has been taking over time. So you see where they were in 2000. uh, They were down ranked around 15. So they're still in the top 20. Uh, Shot up to like the the second spot, second or third spot, you know, and now now they're having around the fifth, right? So they've actually been doing pretty good. Now, what does that mean? So let's go ahead and scroll down here just a little bit so we can look at what we're talking about. So rule of law, they're like a 7.8 overall procedural justice. This has to do with kind of like the practical application of going through the justice system then you have your civil so again when you're when you're trying to go through processes uh, or adjudicate claims things like that civil justice criminal law that's all pretty uh pretty straightforward and they, and they rank fairly high right 7.2 7.4 uh safety security and safety homicide they're at 9.8 disappearances conflicts and terrorism 9.9 that's actually incredible because i considering already, their history <laughs> Well, keep in mind, most most terrorism, even in Ireland, was usually in Northern Ireland, which is technically part of the UK. Mm-hmm. So it was around Belfast and whatnot. So it's not as if it was. But if you would have gone to the early 20th century, I'll tell you right now, disappearances, conflicts and terrorism. Ireland would have been way down the list when it was uh, before it became the Irish Free Strait um, movement, freedom of movement. Um, and then when they talk about freedom of movement, they also talk about international. Now, keep in mind, Cato was very libertarian. So they tend to push toward kind of more open borders, more freedom of movement um, for immigration and economic purposes. So when they get a six point seven, you know they, they're they're scoring them lower it's on. It's also of these
2: worthy things. to note that this was pre-COVID.
0: Well, this is like right. right so this is right this as COVID is like the, the started data, to hit. Yeah. So
2: like, if you're thinking we saw a lot of lack of freedom uh, the last few years, uh, this isn't really encompassing all of that mm-hmm. necessarily, which is why a lot of people are going to have a beef with with this data. The episode- also, hold on. One, one thing I want to mention. I see people here from Switzerland and people from Sweden. If we mention your country, let us know you're here uh, because I know we've got folks all over the world
0: and if we screw up pronunciations it's all christian's fault no that's
1: that's definitely your fault because you called it five minutes ago the irish free Strait. no i didn't yeah you did irish free state Uh, no comment section let nick know that he called it the irish free Strait, not state whatever um Uh,
2: we got somebody from ireland um
1: i i I, it, it is worth um mentioning that later in this episode we do have other uh, other sources not yeah. just other indexes that we're going to go through and, th- that and, are more and, recent too
0: yeah and what we're, we're, we're going to spend a lot of time to uh, going over here a little bit later on the episode once we've kind of laid the groundwork for the countries that have, have been scoring the highest is we're really going to do a, a strong comparison between the number one freest in the world uh, and the united states and talk about some of the similarities and some of the differences so as you can see freedom of religion freedom of association assembly civil society all still pretty high within ireland Let's go over to the second column here, go up here, economic freedom. All right, this is one where they they just, I mean, 6.2 on size of government. You are going to see this across the board on a lot of countries that are otherwise economically free. One of the biggest problems they have is the, excuse me, the size of government. So government consumption, to give you an idea what that means, it's they look at the total number of GDP and whatnot and government spending. One of the interesting things about GDP numbers, and one of the reasons why they can be a little bit misleading, is because GDP stands for gross domestic product, right? So what that means is everything, it's like the sum total of everything produced by a nation. Well, if the government comes in, prints off a ton of money, right, and then just spends it, your GDP goes up. Now, is that good policy? No, but... You can, you can use it to kind of, you know, manipulate it, uh, transfers and subsidies. This has to do with a lot of your, your welfare state issues. There's 6.9 government investment 10. I mean, that, that was, I was pretty surprised on that tarp marginal tax rate, 4.5 state ownership of assets, 7.6, um, legal system and property rights pretty high across the board. The, the area where they get a little bit low is the legal enforcement of contracts. And some of that has to do with how onerous it is to go through the legal system, go down, um, Sound money. They've actually done really well when it comes to sound money, comparatively speaking. Can you explain sound money? So sound money has to do with your, your overall monetary policy. It's it's basically about not only preventing inflation, um, but but the the degree to which people have confidence in the currency that that your your country you know produces. Um, And the various methods that you use in order to control inflation. So overall, they're actually doing pretty well. You're going to see that they're doing better than the U.S. right now. It's worth noting that they use the euro. That's true. that's true. Um, freedom to trade internationally overall, they have a uh, very good. This one is an interesting black market exchange rates. They score very high on this one. So here's what the black market exchange rate means. It means when when you're looking at what something would be sold for or what something would be exchanged for um, uh, on the open market versus what it would be on the black market. If there's not a big difference between those two things, that's actually a good indication that prices, um, are where they should be. They've they've achieved a natural equilibrium. So, for instance, when you have it, when you have a society or you have a government that's constantly like raising tariffs, or it's putting a lot of regulations on certain goods, or penalties, or subsidies, or whatever it is, what that does is it creates problems within the price system within your economy, and that encourages black markets to appear right? And so what you do is you look at how much does it cost to buy this on the black market versus how much does it cost me to buy it at Walmart? You know, what, what's the differences there that factors in and then regulation overall, they do, they do a pretty good job. So this is where Ireland's at. And, and, um, again, for anybody that's, that's in Ireland, you, or, that uh, wants to comment on this, uh, I visited Ireland back, gosh, in the late nineties and it was beautiful. I mean, Ireland was a blast. I, I had a great time. I got to go, uh, Dublin, Kinsale, uh, Ring of Dingle, like the whole the whole area. It was just it was awesome, beautiful country. Were you in
2: Dublin on St. Patrick's Day?
0: No, I was in what? a little village in the middle of Ireland on St. Patrick's Day and I was there and I had my cowboy hat and my boots in this like little village, little village in the middle of Ireland and I had so many people try to buy my cowboy hat off me. Yeah, they, oh my gosh! Did they all know that you were an American because oh, of it? Oh, c- come on! I mean, well, I was I was eighteen, uh, drinking age in Ireland was eighteen, so I'm. So you took
2: advantage of that. I
0: took advantage of that. So I'm sitting there in the pub, um, and it was just such an awesome environment, right? Like everyone was friendly. Nobody was mad or getting like overly drunk or like fights or anything like that. It was just very, very like kind of like family friendly atmosphere in this pub in Ireland on St. Patrick's Day and yeah this lady comes over and, and forgive my for, for those of you who are from Ireland forgive my horrible accent here but it was that's a lovely hat I love that hat can you could I buy that hat off of you and, <laughs> and, and she and she brought the waitress over she's like look at the lovely american boy don't you don't you want to talk to the lovely and I'm like oh, I I have a girlfriend Tina and I were dating Tina every day like that's a, that's a lovely hat but um, yeah, Ireland was great, and apparently one of the freest countries in the world. Very easy place to do business. What's well, worth noting, they were not always.
1: It, it, Hamilton, scroll up just um, uh, just a bit to the graph. Don't again. they
2: have like zero gun rights though? Pause. Uh, That's vast majority the board. of
1: European countries. Okay. Vast majority of countries in the world have very very limited gun rights. I mean, the United States is the most pro gun country in the world. Period. Yeah. Like, not even close. At number two is way further down that yeah. list than the U.S. but Which um, means
2: at any given moment, all these freedoms can be yeah, just can be kind of away. evaporated so they're, in they're, thin air.
1: To that point, actually, there's one thing that I want to bring up. And, and I'm not making excuses for this. I'm, I'm simply trying to explain that, that there's, there's different cultures that, that exist out there than, than the U.S. In the U.S., we have a natural distrust towards government for good reason. Like our, our country was founded on a rebellion against government. It seems like
2: government. Ireland should feel the same. Well, hang Honestly. on. I, I'm not talking with- about
1: Ireland here. I'm talking about some oh, of the countries okay. that are going to be brought up. In some of these other countries, Japan is a good example. Mm-hmm. There's a high, high level of trust in government in Japan. Um, same, same thing with Switzerland. Some of these countries, same thing with Singapore. Some of these countries around the world, they have the opposite relationship with their government that we do. In the US, we have a deep distrust of our government and it's only gotten worse over the past 20, 30, 40 years. But in some of these other countries, there is a significant amount of public trust in yeah. their government. And also, their governments in some of these countries are the equivalent of like what we would call like our state governments, or in some cases, our county governments. So yeah. it it's a different relationship. We look at Washington, D.C. I mean, we're what, two miles or, or two hours away from D.C., less than that, where we're broadcasting right now. And yet we who's really geographically relatively close to D.C., we still think D.C. is like a, an alien planet, <laughs> right? But, but in some of these countries, they view their government as the equivalent of, you know, the, the way that we would view our, our state government or our county government because the, the countries are much smaller and the communities are more tightly knit. And so they don't view government with the degree of distrust that we do. Is that to say that, oh, well, they're so much better than us? No, not necessarily. I think that our distrust of government is very warranted.
2: I, but, I actually thought it would be the other way around, this whole idea where, oh, they're better than us because they, they trust their government. I actually feel like a healthy distrust of government is a good thing. I, well, I, I just said like, it is me, a good thing. To me, that's good. It's t- completely flipped. But well, I, I, but I in do, some I, of
1: these countries, the the trust in their government is not unwarranted is what I'm trying to say, at least until recently. Some of these countries, as we're going to get into in this podcast. I'd
2: love to know how that, how that trust in government has shifted since... Throughout
1: well, the COVID, yeah, go, to say, go, some of these movie. countries we got we got another a higher degree of distrust. <laughs> we got
0: kind of a random question from Scott the, the Celt that I've got to uh, answer. He goes, "Question: What should we do to get ineffectual leaders out of office? I'm of the mind to exile them like the ancient Greeks. What are your thoughts? The Greeks, I, I'm cool
2: with that. The Greeks actually let's, had a,
0: a Greeks actually had a process that was it once a year where it was called um, uh, ostracizing. Where you you wrote the name of you wrote the name of somebody like a a, a Greek official I think the Athenians did this I don't think it's, all the Greeks did this but I think the Athenians did this where you could write the name of, of an official and they got exiled for a, a certain number of years like they they were forced to leave the country
1: Demosthenes got exiled yeah and then he came back and started a war with Macedon that they yeah. Lost, yeah yeah
2: right? <laughs> I feel like we so. should do that.
0: So well, it, Why can't it was. We
2: do that? It, it, it was.
0: It was interesting. <laughs> There's actually some some interesting stories on that. All right, let's go to the next country. What's wait right, So that was fifth in human freedom. What is fourth? Denmark. All right, Denmark is ranked eighth overall in personal freedom and fifth overall in economic freedom. Now, here's one of the. Here's something I want to point out right now that I think is interesting. Bernie Sanders, everyone else loves to point to Scandinavian countries, Denmark being one of them, uh, Sweden being another one, where he says like, "Oh, see, socialism works. Look at these places." And and I think it was Denmark. The prime minister of Denmark felt compelled to actually come out and explain like, "We are not a socialist country." That was in 2016 when when that happened. Yeah. Now they do they do have a fairly sizable social welfare state, um, and, and I I would certainly question I, I would certainly question the overall economic freedom based off of their tax burden because their tax burden is pretty high. Uh, in Denmark, but they make it easy to do other things like own a business. And and this is one they of these- They have no minimum wage. Yeah. This is one of these areas where I look at Cato and I'm like, okay, how are you ranking some of this? Because when when I look at overall tax burden, I, I think that should actually play a little bit higher role. Um, so there's- but and, and keep in mind, this is comparatively speaking. Mm-hmm. When every country raises their taxes, yeah. when every country raises their regulations because of COVID and whatnot, well then- that's going to affect all the rankings. One one thing that I
1: think is going to be really gotten across to our audience over the course of this podcast is that there actually truly are few rivals to the United States. There are some, yeah, but there are few rivals to the United States when you when you look at the the, the total picture because a lot of these countries. I did we actually reveal yet what rank the U.S. No. is at? Okay, so no. I'm going to hold that we off. We're going to get yet. to that later, but. Um, When you find out what rank the U.S. has, you're going to be like, wow. But you have to consider both personal and economic freedom put together. There's actually very few countries in this world that rank higher than the U.S. in both of those categories. There's a lot that rank higher than the U.S. in one or the other. Particularly in, in personal freedom more than economic freedom. There's actually very few countries that can compete with the United States in terms of economic freedom. There are a couple, though. Yeah. We'll, we'll get well, to them The, over the, the other of this thing
0: podcast. you're going to notice by a lot of these countries is that they are significantly smaller than the United by States. By the way, Darts significant, back to what I was smaller, saying smaller, that like yeah. they,
1: they view their government the way that we would view our like city. Yeah. You, know, Cal-
2: you, you mentioned um, some of these people calling these countries socialist, and you attributed that to Denmark, but somebody. Dark Matter says that it was Sweden...
0: No, there was a couple. It wasn't oh, just okay. Sweden. Yeah. It, you got to understand. It, it's Yeah, Sweden was one that they commonly pointed to as being a socialist country, and it really wasn't. I, again, this They have is the,
2: certain types of socialized uh, w- Yeah, what services. it is is they, they
0: have a large social welfare state. They might have a large safety net or things like that. Um, but th- to call them socialist, socialism is the abolition of the private ownership of the means of production. I, I got in a big fight with Lee Carter on this one. Lee Carter used to be a member of the Virginia oh, House of Delegates. Oh, poor me I Lee. me Lee. the story. So Lee, Lee Carter was- a, a member of the Virginia house of delegates. He was the only member of a Southern state legislature that was a self-identified socialist. And he got up there one day on the floor and just started going off about how socialism is just about wanting people to have a fair share and wanting access to healthcare and access to affordable housing and access to a job that will actually pay a livable wage and education for everyone, no matter your, your economic status, that's all we want as socialists. And so I got a bad one. I'm like, well, okay, that's, adorable, right? Who doesn't want that, right? Who doesn't want people to have those things? Everybody here wants to have those things. You didn't actually distinguish what, what you needed to talk about was how does socialism achieve those things? Oh, I know it's by seizing the means of production and putting it into the hands of government officials who will then redistribute and allocate resources in accordance with political incentives. Oh, doesn't sound so sexy now, does it? I mean, I didn't say quite like that on the floor. <laughs> but the point was is that Maybe it it's you should
2: this, have. That would have been a viral
0: moment for you. It's this absolute garbage of here's a bunch of good things that I want, and I'm a socialist, which means socialists are the people that want good things. No, socialism is a process, it is a mechanism for achieving your end states. And oh, by the way, it has a horrible track record of achieving those end states. And so what you've seen is they have gradually over time modified or attempted to modify. the the impression of what socialism is. So now if you have a military, people are like, well, that's that's a socialist institution. No, it isn't. It's a government institution. You you can certainly make the argument that uh, that all governments in the West has moved more and more toward government control of things like retirement systems and healthcare. And I think that's problematic. But socialism is getting rid is is essentially eliminating the free market economy as we know it today. So anybody that is trying to say that Denmark socialists either knows nothing about Denmark or Sweden or knows nothing about socialism. Probably. Uh,
2: some, there are some interesting things in the chat that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, extreme FPS uh, says fun fact, Europe can have a, have high taxes and have small militaries due to reliance on the U S military. Do you agree with that? Correct.
0: I used to, so I used to joke around that, um, I, I, you know, people say Europe doesn't have a strong, you, you know, European countries don't have strong militaries. I'm like, yes, they do. They have the strongest military in the world. It's based in the United States. Um, and it's it's largely responsible for maintaining world stability at this point or in some cases not so much but the the point is is yeah they they have it, donald trump was correct when he called out nato for almost almost no nato countries fulfilling their obligation to to spend a certain minimum amount of their gdp i think it was 2% of their gdp on defense spending um and, and their attitude was why do we need to the united states military spends 5% you know yeah. plus and and so they no they they did, I think, get to a point where they were able to transfer a ton of money into social welfare programs uh, that they would have otherwise had to spend on the defense if they couldn't rely on us.
1: You should see. I, I, I want to talk about that for a minute. Um you should see opinion polling of European countries that show the number of people per European country that say that they're willing to fight militarily to defend themselves or their neighbors, and the number of people in those countries that say that they believe the United States would get involved in order to militarily defend themselves or their neighbors. It's like, universally, throughout the entire European Union and beyond, um, Overwhelming majorities of the public in these countries say that they think that the U.S. would get involved if a foreign country invaded, say, like Croatia. But yeah. overwhelmingly, the majority of these countries say, yeah, but I don't want to do anything to help them. In fact, this actually happened in Ireland. Ireland is not part of NATO. No. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was actually a debate within the the Irish government of maybe we should should apply for NATO. And the opposition said, no, we don't need to apply for NATO because if we ever get invaded, the United States will defend us. <laughs> That's also why we don't need a military. My stepfather um, served in the military and he was stationed in West Germany in the 1980s at the very height of the Cold War. Um, I, I, basically like during the arms race under Reagan. And he um, he told me, because he and I have had a lot of conversations about um, his time stationed in Western Europe when he was in the military. And he um, told me that of all the militaries that he he worked with during his time in the service... Um, he thought the German, the West German army, was the w- most worthless military force he ever interacted with. Mm. That's incredible that that somebody would be saying the Germans have a terrible military. Yeah, yeah. But but like the, the the historical narrative that we have on German military superiority is just not there anymore. And the reason why is because we subsidize them. We still have bases in Germany.
0: Well, you you got to understand too that the, culturally in Germany there there's a. <laughs> And and for understandable reasons, right? There, there's a a huge backlash against militarism in general, um, and, and so and that that I, has I that draw has, a distinction between militarism and I'm, having the I'm capability not, to defend yourself. Yeah, sure, fine. But when you're when you're, this goes this goes into studies that they conducted about how French students, English students, and and German students were taught about World War One, and and after World War One, German students were essentially taught that they the politicians had had. You know, abandoned Stabbing the military, in the back stabbed myth. in the back. Right. In in the UK they had taught that, you know, brave British went over to defend freedom. And in France, they taught him that war is a horrible thing and it's awful and everybody was were victims of it. Well, in, in World War One, France fought fought to the gosh dang it, my yeah. I keep doing flubs. France fought to the absolute, like bitter end. And then in World War Two
1: Three weeks and they were out. Remember when I told you that in August 1914, France suffered 300,000 casualties in one month. Yeah, we can't that's even fathom that's unthinkable that. today. But that's so. That's the point. So let's get. Let's, I will let's, say
2: we do have uh, some people in the chat saying that they absolutely would defend their country. I think Switzerland is one that mentioned so well let's let's go through let's look we, at denmark we, we're here. Not They're trying the to, one exception we're, here. We're gonna, we'll get we're to not them trying in a... to drag on anybody here so
0: Oops, i keep hitting cameras all right we're not yeah we're just all right let's move on let's get through denmark here real quick <laughs> let's scroll down let's look at some of the comparisons here one of the things you're going to see right off the bat is that it's pretty similar to ireland across the board on their freedom of movement the freedom of religion freedom of association assembly etc um direct attacks on the press are, are a little bit higher over there their size of government similar problem right government consumption uh, top marginal tax rates things like that here's what's so interesting about um, and and um, forgive me if I pronounce your name wrong but uh, Jonas brought this up um, and he's from Sweden um, they, they have free market economies but they have heavy public sector entities so that's that's your big social safety nets and things like that and what's What's problematic about this, because some people will look at this and be like, well, what is it? You just said that the freest countries in the world have huge, massive government spending. Isn't that a positive thing? I I would argue that it is not because over time what ends up happening is the more the government sector takes over the economy or the more the government is responsible for taking care of things that used to be the province of the individual or the family, the more reliance and dependency sets in, and that always has a negative long-term impact on your economy and on your country. Look at the inflation rate that's currently
1: gripping most of the Eurozone right now versus the United States. We've talked on this podcast many times before about inflation in the United States, and it has been historically very high compared to the long-term trajectory. Over the past two to three years, it's been really, really high. But the inflation rate in Europe is significantly worse yeah. than the United States, significantly worse. Well, Some of these countries still have high, high double digit inflation, like like close to 20% or the, 15%. The, the
0: UK went out of their way to just really hurt themselves on, on their monetary policy. Um, when, when they... Uh, essentially, they were increasing inflation at the same time that they were they were you know raising interest rates, which is crazy because usually you raise the interest rates, but they they allowed this thing to buy back the equivalent of what they call treasuries. Well, they they don't call it treasuries. What do they call they it? They call them gilts. gilts. Um This was last <laughs> October. In, interesting, and September. interesting name. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so they hurt themselves. And then uh, the the European Union has their own issues because you know, they're they're connected by this monetary policy, but they have very, very different fiscal policies among various nations. And so that's the issue you see where, you know, Germany and some of these other countries are constantly having to bail out other countries in Europe, especially places like Greece which is probably the most, uh, you know, um, the, the largest example where they have these massive social welfares. I mean, it's this idea in Greece that, oh, you're retired 50 and you just live off of okay, well, that doesn't work. And they ended up in a huge problem because of that. So same thing in France where people
1: are literally rioting in the streets right now because they raised the retirement age to 64.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, so, so many of these things end up, you know, they're, they're not a bad problem when you have a robust economy, but then as soon as you create generations dependent upon these systems, uh, you end up having serious problems, legal system and property rights, pretty good across the board, legal enforcement of contracts, again, 6.6, that's the lowest one. Uh, go down a little bit more. They're still giving them a high score on sound money. We'll see about that. Um, and then movement of capital and people again they, they actually score a little bit higher. This is probably because um, you know the the EU actually has fairly um, lax immigration among all EU partner yeah, states. Yeah, the Schengen
1: area you can walk across the border without needing to like get a visa or yeah. get your passport stamped or anything like that.
0: Yeah. Nick on the MTA channel, MD asks, "How do we return to sound money? Where should we start?" Oh gosh. So th- this is this is one of the most. I- I'll tell you right now, and this is the sad part. Right, the the only way I think you're probably going to return to sound money is after. The fiat currency system that we has goes through such such an abysmal crisis um, that it it it's required. Like there's no other alternative, and, and that's the problem. Is that there there's a lot of ways to slow down the train. There's a lot when when you have a fiat currency. There's ways to slow down the train, right? There there's ways to. Um, you know, make, make things a little bit better or improve things, you know, raising interest rates is one of the ways that they're trying to take the inflation out of the economy. The problem is, is the political incentives to print money in order to justify more spending are so significant um, within a, within our system that it's almost inevitable that eventually a purely fiat currency collapses in on itself and, and one, or goes through some sort of significant crisis, which requires significant alteration to the system. So do I ever think we're going to go back to... Um, you know when people say like the gold standard a lot of people are like oh you're going to carry around gold coins no that's not what the gold standard means uh, what it essentially means is that you you have your money fiat currency, which is just that it, it, it's paper, right? The, the government it has value because the government says it has value and because people believe it has value, but it's not tied to anything with intrinsic value. So some sort of commodity based currency where you're you're tied to something that has intrinsic value and that there's a limited amount of right. That's why gold was so popular for a while. You had the you had the silver standard stuff like that. It, it's because when it's tied to that. Um, you can't just print as much money as you want in order to feed your your government spending habits. And so that, that's where I can see us going back to some sort of mechanism where it's tied to something um, objective and limited uh, that will prevent the, the sort of out-of-control government spending. But I don't see it happening without a major crisis. All right, so that's Denmark. Let's go to number three. Number three on the list. Estonia. So now we, it's getting interesting. We've been in Europe the whole time Look here. Look at
1: the trajectory of Estonia over the last 20 years.
0: Yeah. And, and so Estonia was ranking, um, it wasn't even in the top 20 back in 2000. And it is almost very consistently moved up the chain. There was a little dip there, it looks like in 2012. But it has been rapidly going up. It's ranked six in personal freedom, eight in overall economic freedom. And something that's really important to point out here Estonia used to be a part of the Soviet Union. Um so th- this is our first Eastern European country which was a, a former Soviet bloc country. Um you know not a former not, part of the Soviet not, Union not, not even a its, puppet state yeah city. yeah not by its own choice. Yeah. Right? Uh but if you if you look here you're going to see very you're going to see a lot of similarities uh rule of law, procedural justice, criminal justice. Now again, when you look at criminal justice, an important thing to note here is Cato tends to be more libertarian. So they, they tend to have a, a different view on criminal justice reforms. So you you there might be some people that have a more conservative bent that look at this and say, all right, well, why did they score lower in criminal justice? And it might be that there's essentially criminal law, maybe associated with drugs, maybe associated with marijuana. I don't know. I'm just saying in general, if you see a lower score there... There, there's some people that might look at that and be like, "Well, I don't have a problem with that," but they it ends up scoring them lower in in the view of what is essentially a libertarian philosophy that's making these rankings.
1: It, by the way, the reason that Estonia is what it is in 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 terms of of its positioning on this scoreboard is in large part because the liberals have been in control of the Estonian parliament for many many years now and liberalism in the international stage is not the same thing as yeah. when we say liberalism in the United States liberalism in in a country like Estonia it's technically the reform party um li- liberalism in Estonia is economic freedom and personal freedom yeah. it's 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 classical liberalism it's 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 not progressivism the it's way it is it's more libertarian
0: talk. View of, sure. Yeah. A mild form. Yeah, we yeah, don't very, mean very big mild, L libertarian. Very, very, very yeah. mild. Yeah. But they, they're the sort of people when you hear people like in the United States, Republicanism has generally been associated with, well, theoretically, it's supposed to be associated with free market economics and a uh, rule of law and ordered liberty and things like that. Whereas a more libertarian view of these things, um, essentially on on a lot of the social issues takes a, a different a different bent on everything from the drug war to marriage to things like that. Uh, someone, school,
2: someone asked if the high score is better or worse.
0: Uh, high score and this is better. Okay. High score and this is better. All right, go ahead and scroll down a little bit. Uh, so again, you see the same thing across the board with associations, civil liberties, uh, expression and information. This is one part where they just crush it in the personal freedom. Um, and and I think this, we did a video a while back on on Lithuania and uh, some of the things that happened during the fall of Soviet Union. There, there is such... An emphasis on, on freedom of the press and freedom of expression. I think, in large part, because you have generations that are old enough to remember the violent suppression of it, and and have been very very adamant about making sure that it was open. The other thing on relationships here, this one's, um, you know, again, they take more of a libertarian. Into the- this is this is one where again they. And we just did a podcast. C- on this Cato topic. places huge emphasis on you know government recognition of a, a variety of different marriages
2: see it seems like they would want government out of it if they were libertarians. well and, and
0: you you if you if you actually sit down with with a libertarian and discuss this that that is the position that they'll usually take it, is that they don't want the government defining it but if the government is going to define it then they want to broaden the definition and yeah that's where I but break it with also
2: requires force in these other countries to force religious organizations to uphold their law well, it, it so, depends on
1: on the way in which you you have this. So, sure, like,
2: it depends. But like the reality is, you know, you've got all these these countries where I mean, churches are definitely being infringed, but you don't see anything under religion in there.
0: Uh, no, there is as a fr- free, freedom is of that? religion. Yeah, is freedom a, religion if you, if is there scroll up. A, This is about relationships, okay. not religion. Yeah. So, I, so, so it
2: seems like. As also it association assembly cute. and
1: civil society freedom of assembly freedom of forum to run political parties civil society
0: repression
2: I feel so- like they're they're missing something here
0: I mean I I this is this is what I'm just saying this is a difference of opinion sometimes right. with by the way more traditionally and, and we also version.
1: we also brought up that that we're not gonna agree with everything in these rankings right right? we're giving one set of rankings we have another set of rankings that we're going to get to closer to the end of this podcast that's also a little bit more recent that i I think and nick thinks is is kind of gonna gonna highlight how it depends it depends on the category you're looking at Mm -hmm. in some categories you can say oh oh you know this country has like, like think about it like this if you had a society where everybody was free to vote Everybody was free to vote. There was no restrictions on voting. It, it was it was super easy. It was basically a direct democracy. But there was no private ownership of property. If you were looking at it from a perspective of free elections, you would say this is the freest country in the world. But if you were looking at it from a, ter- from a position of economic freedom, you would say this country is no more free than North Korea is. And so it, it depends on the metric that you're looking at, because on one hand, you can say, oh, you have a high degree of freedom here, but on another hand, you have very little freedom there. So it's about understanding the nuance between the different categories and then piecing together all things considered where does this country rank in terms of total freedom? And that question can only be answered by yourself, ultimately, depending on what you value. The people at this table, I think the thing that we value more than anything else is. Economic freedom, because I don't think you can have freedom without economic freedom. Otherwise, you're just voting on who's going to be running your life for you. And I don't view that as freedom. If you don't have property rights, if you don't have economic freedom, then it doesn't matter who you're electing to office because you're just basically electing your dictator.
0: Yeah. Well, let's go. So let's look at a couple more of these here just to see how it. Uh, so go over to the next column. Um, yeah. And there you go. One of the things that they score higher here is on the government consumption. So they don't have as, as significant issues with the overall size of government, transfers, subsidies. Th- those, this is going to be something where I think over time, the transfers and subsidies issue is really going to be problematic um, acor- across any country that has essentially chosen to make the government responsible for ever growing social safety nets. And here's why it's really easy for people to point at something like to point at the worst case scenario. That's like the elderly person who has no family left, who's completely destitute. It's the, the person that through no fault of their own through natural disaster or whatnot, um, you know, needs assistance. It's the it's the single mom scenario. Right? Like it's, it's all of these things that are, are used to show that my gosh, shouldn't we have some sort of like safety net of last resort? Right? They they for some reason they can't take care of themselves. They don't have a family to do it. They don't have a strong friend network to do it. There's not enough civic organizations in the particular area. Shouldn't there be something as a last resort? And and most people look at that and say, well, this seems to make sense. Here's what you need to understand on the political incentive side the more politicians can essentially hand stuff out, right? The better it is for them electorally. And, and so there is always a push to move more and more people into the category of qualifying for transfer and subsidy payments. Always, right? And, and I'll tell you why. If, if you have a family, because you got to write the line somewhere on a transfer or subsidy, right? Some sort of welfare program. You've got you've to draw the line somewhere which means there's a dollar amount somewhere where you're eligible for it here, but you're not eligible for it here. And you can always find, once again, somebody that it is very sympathetic that is just barely, barely doesn't qualify for whatever the subsidy or the transfer payment is. And so you make the argument that, well, shouldn't this person qualify? And most people are like, yeah, I, I get it. That's a, that's a unique situation. And so they change the goalposts. And then what happens? Well now you have another category of people that are just oh, just they just barely, barely don't qualify. And and over time, that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it ends up becoming a, a situation where more and more people are taking out of that public pot than are actually putting into it. And what happens is you reach a certain level of insolvency. Well, do you think those same politicians are going to come back and say, Oh gosh, we were wrong. This wasn't long-term sustainable. No, they're going to create enemies. There's a reason why it's not working. It's because of greedy people over there. And if only these politicians had more control over the economy, they'd be able to fix it. So that's why whenever I look at things like government consumption transfers and subsidies, um, I get really, really worried state ownership of assets. I get really, really worried about that because I look at that as a, um, uh, a fragile, system over the long term. Uh, but Sony is doing better in those categories. Uh, go ahead and scroll down. Again, you kind of see similarities here uh, across the board with with the other countries. We're not talking about major shifts. Whenever they talk about labor market regulations, a lot of that has to do with labor laws, unionization, things of that nature. And this is interesting because there's a lot of people, we actually talked about this once, and um, there's a lot of people that look at um, a job is something that the laborer owns. And this is a very, very important distinction. So in Virginia, we have what they call right to work, um, which is to say that um, you, you can't be forced to join a union within the Commonwealth of Virginia. We also have at-will employment, which is to say that if your employer wants to fire you, as long as they're not firing you based off of something that violates uh, state or federal law, like they can't fire you based off of your race or something like that. But if they want if they just decide they want to fire you, they can fire you you're not required some big elaborate explanation. Now, a lot of people look at that and they have this kind of visceral reaction. Well, that's not fair. That's not good. Well, it's certainly there can certainly be times where it's inappropriate or it's wrong or it's cold hearted, but the, the question comes as one of property rights. So when a business creates a job, the job doesn't belong to the person they pay to do the job. The job belongs to the business. It has to by necessity belong to the business. What belongs to the person that is doing the job is their labor. And while the laborer should absolutely sell their labor, their talents, whatever it is that they're providing to the relationship, they should sell it at the best price they can possibly get to a company that is going to treat them with dignity and respect. Of course, they should do all of those things. However, the company also has a right to hire the best person for the best price possible. So it's, it's a little bit ridiculous to say that, oh, well, a, a business is exploiting labor, provided that the labor voluntarily chose that job. If the labor comes back and says, we want more money for our labor, we don't say, oh, well, you're exploiting the business. No, in, in, a, in a free transaction between labor and the employer, both sides are able to come to the table and determine how they're gonna negotiate things like hours, pay, benefits, and things of that nature. And so when you see a lower score on labor market regulations, typically what that is, is the government putting their hand on the scale for labor unions. Now, you can argue all day long that you think that's better for the laborer. I, I would argue that that's actually a problematic um, argument. Ultimately, it is not. Yeah. In the short run, it is.
1: But ultimately, it is not. And the reason why, like, here's a good example. In France, it's basically impossible to fire somebody. It is, it is virtually impossible to fire somebody from a job. Um, and so businesses are extremely hesitant to hire anybody for anything. Um, there's a relatively low unemployment rate in France because a lot of people have jobs, but well, there is a high is, youth unemployment. rate. There is a high youth unemployment. It, it hurts younger people more than anybody else who don't yet have marketable skills. That's a phrase that my friend Tyler, the other Tyler, the one that's in yeah. politics um, that lives in Harrisonburg um, uh, that, that I remember, he used. He's once. He's doxing
2: his friend over here. Um, yeah,
1: but but like, <laughs> I, it, it is the 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 problem with societies like that when you make it extremely difficult to fire an employee, is that you also intrinsically make it extremely difficult to hire one because businesses are going to be extremely hesitant to to do so, and ultimately, what that does is is that it doesn't equip people with new skills. So the reason the United States is The economic juggernaut that it is is because how how many times have you seen somebody who becomes a multimillionaire or multibillionaire that started off working for another company, acquired some skills, and then used that to start their own business? like
0: uh, The vast majority of them. There's this this idea that everybody that has this level of money just inherited all of it where it's like, wait a second, 70% of the people in the top 1% income bracket won't be there next year.
1: Jeff Bezos worked (laughs) at, at, at IBM before he started Amazon. And he used the skills that he acquired working there in order to build the idea that he had to be, that eventually became Amazon. And there's so many examples of stuff like that. Um, so I, it, it, the the whole contracts thing and and you know like like labor relations and stuff like that. That's you know Cato only lists that as one of many, but that's actually quite high on the list. It's in pretty, terms if this of, was
0: weighted, that would be I mean, and maybe I would weight it pretty significantly. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next country. All right. This, this one I take some issue with. Um, now, you you can see why they ranked it. You can see why they ranked it higher. And and if you look at things like size of government. What's govern- the country for our audience New Zealand. Listeners? Sorry. This is New Zealand. New Zealand is ranked number two. It's ranked 11th in personal freedom and fourth in economic freedom. Um, scroll down a little bit. We're not going to spend too much time on this other than to say that, I, I mean, I, I got some issues with this. They score very, very high on, on personal freedom across the board. There's uh, there's some issues with disappearances, conflicts, and terrorism, which quite frankly surprises me. Um, go ahead and scroll down some more.
1: That's actually really interesting. May- maybe that involves they're, something with the yeah. native population. I have no they're, idea. They're, they're
0: pretty high in expression and information and relationships. Uh, then you go over to the other side on the economic side. Uh, the freedom to trade internationally is, is pretty high. Uh, their movement of capital and people they get a little bit lower score. Th- that's kind of interesting because obviously we're talking about we're talking about. I mean, it's more than two islands, but predominantly two islands in the, in the South Pacific. That's uh, why they that
1: that yeah. that's why they have a lower freedom of movement. Because at, at the end of the day, y- you see this with some of these countries that are like inherently the geography makes it easier for them to be isolated from the rest of the world. Yeah, there's always a segment of of people within those countries that are like, yeah, and we we don't want to make it easy for people to move yeah. here because we want to pick and choose who we want to allow into our country. You have the same thing in Japan, yeah. where it's like they would score abysmally yeah. <laughs> yeah. in terms Japan, of freedom. Japan has government. a very, very tough. They want you to visit. Policy. They don't want you to stay.
0: Yeah. Go ahead and scroll up a little bit because I want to, I want to point something out here. One of the reasons why they do so well on the economic freedom side has to do with the size of government scores. Cause you'll notice they are uh, like on a lot of these countries, once you start get up into the top five, you're talking about fairly minor differences, but be- between, you know, one versus two versus three, uh, they actually do fairly better on government consumption, transfers and subsidies. I don't think it's trending in that direction in New Zealand. I, I think New Zealand is going to be- the socialists are in charge right now. I, I don't New think New Zealand. Zealand's going to be ranked two on this um, next time around. I mean, maybe maybe they can prove some of their human uh, freedom scores. So by the way- I think their economic freedom is going to be It's worth
1: noting that there's a difference between a country's ranking compared to the entire rest of the world and the country's ranking intrinsically in of itself. So here's yeah. what I mean by that. New Zealand is currently ranked number 2 in the entire world according to Cato, yeah, on their human freedom index. But look at their score. New Zealand's score 8.75 as of their their latest ranking, but historically this is something that I've I've been paying attention to as you've been going through this entire list. Yeah. Country after country after country, their score, not their ranking compared to other countries, but their intrinsic score has been on the decline. Yeah. New Zealand used to be ranked over 9 over 9 um you know got got a score of over 9 now it's 8.75 and you see since 2016 and especially in the lead up to 2020 including 2020 it fell off a cliff this um this report actually does include the very beginning of covid so it it, it makes sense it doesn't include the entire story of covid but it, yeah. it includes the beginning of covid so it makes sense that a country like New Zealand which went through extreme lockdowns during covid would fall off a cliff. Hamilton, if when you go back Zealand, to, can, can, can you briefly click on some of the previous countries we want to? Because I just want to look at the score. You see it, country after country. Yeah. New Zealand, scroll up just a little bit. Hamilton, this is Estonia. Yeah. Even Estonia briefly does dip, although in the grand scheme of things, it's actually still higher than where it was twenty years ago. This is raw score. Yeah. Um. Uh. G- go to the the next one.
0: Yeah. They all. They all. Denmark
1: dips. dips. Uh, this is the COVID dip. Go go to the go to the first one, which is Ireland. Ireland dips as well. Every so, so so, what what's what's worth noting is that a country could go. It's actually happened in some cases. A country could go up on the list, right? They could jump up a place or two places, but their actual raw score could drop, and that's indicative of the fact that, quite frankly, and I think a lot of people know this, especially if they're watching this podcast or listening to us. Freedom is is retreating around the world right yeah. now.
0: Well, I mean the COVID is, I mean, really caused a lot of countries, a lot of at an institutional level, caused a lot of people to actually question uh, their their commitment to individual choices in a time of crisis. Now, there, there's always let's be fair about this. There have always been cases where you you've had international pandemics world wars and things like that, where we all know that civil liberties take a nosedive, right? It just happens. Um, the, the question is, is what does the recovery look like post-crisis and has the government actually expanded post-crisis in such a way to where it doesn't retreat back? And what we generally see in this, could, I mean, Jefferson talked about this is that typically speaking, government continually expands, um, at a, at a rate far beyond what you might, what you might be able to use to justify based off of things like, you know, population growth or, or things of that nature. It just continually expands. Um, And, and that's, that's the problem that we have right now. And I think a lot of people are watching is to see, okay, what, what happens now, obviously we had a, we had a major, um, major infringements on civil liberties across the, across the world, economic freedoms across the world. um, and, And there's been, there's been a significant recovery from that. Obviously we don't have the economy locked down anymore in the United States. The, the but what is a little bit scary is when you start reading opinion polls of people not just in the United States but in other countries who were perfectly comfortable with the idea of jailing people that didn't get a vaccination that's a little bit scary and it was almost always the, the more left wing you were, the more comfortable you were with imprisoning people that didn't get a vaccine.
1: Oh, it was worse than that. It would be imprisoning people that went out in public to protest lockdowns, even if they were themselves yeah. vaccinated and also imprisoning people who spread disinformation yeah. about either vaccines or lockdowns or government policies. I'm sorry, but when you get to a point where government, where, where significant chunks of the population in some countries, a majority, supported the government imprisoning people or otherwise punishing them yeah. for voicing opposition to government policies, that that's when you start having like tyranny sort of creep gets, That's in.
0: when it gets a little scary. Is is this idea that they could just shut you down? It's one. It is one thing for them to say. Let, let's just let let's put this in the. Let's put this in the most favorable light possible. It is one thing to say, hey, we, we've got a, you know, let's say early days of, of uh, COVID, early days, right? All right, look, we don't know what this is going to do. We don't know how bad it's going to be. We're still figuring things out. We, we need everyone to be cautious and careful. And oh, by the way, we're shutting down like major gatherings and sporting events. Now, I might not have liked that, but I would have understood the reasoning behind it. But when you go beyond that, when you go beyond something that's practical, but when the same people are saying, no, 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 it's perfectly fine to go march in the street and spray paint buildings, like defund the police and, you know, F the police and everything else. But if you go to church, you know, that's going to be responsible for the the death of civilization, right? That's the part where we started to see right off the bat, like, wait a second, you're not as committed to this as you, as you told us you were. And, and. But if anybody else says something against the government narrative, you're going to work. And now we know from the Twitter files and everything else, you are going to work with social media companies to essentially apply pressure to shut them down, cancel them, dox them. I mean, that's the part where it's like you you allowed for a threshold of government interference and censorship that was quite frankly terrifying. And I don't know that a lot of Americans – I think a lot of Americans that were already mad about it from the beginning – stayed mad about it. I think there were some people like Bill Maher, that said, yeah this is this has gone too this has gone too far. What really concerns me is the 35, 40 percent of the uh, like the far more like left- wing progressive who didn't think it went far enough and that still don't think it went far enough. like even when you've shown them all the evidence that this was problematic, they didn't. And that's where when you look at these scores and, and you look at freedom of the press, I mean, that was, and not just freedom of the press, right? Cause the press sometimes was complicit in doing this. They were calling for censorship. It's, it's more freedom
1: of expression yes, yes. And, 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 and freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, not necessarily freedom of the press. Because as you said, a, a lot of times in a lot of these countries, and also a lot of these countries have, have basically state media, right? You know, the BBC yeah. is, is taxpayer funded in the UK, for yeah. example, right? Same thing with the ABC in Australia, um, this
0: is this is a, again this is why when people get on to uh, you know conservatives or libertarian people in the United States like whoa you want to get rid of PBS Oh, you want to get rid of Sesame Street no we don't like the idea of state run media like that that's the part that we don't like that's part that we find problematic also we don't like it when the state comes in and essentially leverages its power to threaten privately owned media to do what they want that's also problematic let's do this now i want to look at the number 1 Freest country in the world. Hamilton, we're going to need you to click on the number one freest country in the world.
1: Everybody take a guess. My guess is going to be North Korea.
0: Nope, it's Switzerland. Oh, I was so close. You were so close. And Switzerland is actually ranked number one on this index, except for a brief period of time between, what is it, 2012, 2016? Uh, ranked number one consistently. It is ranked number two overall in personal freedom. It is ranked number three overall in economic freedom. Now, obviously, they have some issues here on the on the ranking with rule of law, but overall, they got an 8.5. Let's go ahead and scroll down a little bit on that one. We're going to see just a, across the board the same thing that you kind of expect. Um, very
1: high, very high ranking in terms of like homicide and yeah. internal conflicts. They, they almost a 10 out of 10. Yeah, Um. I do find it interesting that they don't have like a 10 or a 9.9 when it comes to freedom of movement. And part of the reason is, is because historically it, it wasn't until later on that Switzerland joined the Schengen area. Um. So it it, it wasn't as easy to say you're gonna have enter. to explain what that is schengen area is um an agreement of european countries to allow free movement of people um now this is actually what what i what's interesting so, so the way that it works is is that let's say in fact there's actually a good chance that, that this might be the case when i go to the uk in december to get my um my masters I'm, I'm i've been looking at flights lately and and um one is allowed for a layover in the netherlands and i was thinking to myself like how cool would it be to like you know walk across the border into Belgium because it's very, very close. Um, You could do that legally. If if you go to, like, say, Amsterdam or Rotterdam, you could travel, you know, 30 minutes south into Belgium and just walk across the border and nobody will stop you. You don't need to get a visa. You don't need to get your passport checked or anything like that. You just walk across the border. It'd be the equivalent of traveling between state lines in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they allow that is because both countries, both Belgium and the Netherlands are part of what's called the Schengen area. And the Schengen area includes the vast majority of European Union members, but it also includes Switzerland, which is not in the European Union. And so what that means is that you can travel between France and Switzerland without needing to go through any sort of customs or anything, even though Switzerland's not in the European Union and France is. Now, there's a dark side of it, though. And the negative side of the Schengen area is that it has allowed for a significant amount of brain drain. And so countries with very, relatively, very strong economies like Germany and France that are kind of like the economic juggernauts of the European Union, they're attracting workers from Eastern European countries that are have a much lower standard of living, much, low, uh, much lower incomes, fewer job opportunities, and they're, they're moving to Germany and France you have, the, you have this issue in particular in the Baltic states where there's just not as many jobs. And so younger people that are growing up in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, they're moving in droves to Germany to find work. And what's what, what it's created is a problem where Baltic states are just, they're pumping out like college grads and high school grads, but they're not keeping them. And so for some of these countries, the free movement of people is actually hurting their economies and others are able to benefit more from it. Um, so, so it's, it, you know, there's a plus and minus side to it, but Cato does again, as a libertarian organization, they place a high emphasis on, on that in terms of their priority list. But if you go through the rest of Switzerland, what you see is very few instances of, of lagging indicator, you know, lagging numbers on any of these indicators. So, you know, under like freedom of religion, it's very, very high. Obviously association assembly and civil society, which I place in terms of like Outside of economic freedom, I place a very high priority on that. Yeah. They're very high scores. I mean, they get a 10 out of 10 when it comes to freedom of assembly, for example. Um, in fact, Switzerland, I I think, had one of the fewest amount of government-imposed lockdowns of European countries during COVID. Um, not that they didn't have any, but but well, it, it, they didn't the have means- it to the degree of neighboring Austria where they wanted to literally like... like Block the you know like, like force the unvaccinated into their homes and 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 physically quarantine them there, and until they willingly got the jab. What were you going to say, Nick? I
0: was to say one of the one of the things to understand about that is that we we've talked about this before, where most countries in the world operate off of parliamentarian democracies instead of the sort of like system that we have with with our particular constitutional republic, House of Representatives, Senate. A lot of countries will have something you know similar in some respects, but parliamentarian democracy is, is generally very different. Um, Switzerland is, is uh, if you look at the Swiss Confederation and the way it's set up, and if you look at the overall size of government, you see that they score very well. One of the reasons why um, is because I, I would say probably more than any other uh, country in the world with the possible exception of the United States, may- maybe a couple others, but it, it would rank probably in the top five. It, it has kind of a federalist system. So it operates off of 26 cantons and those cantons are a lo- are, are in many respects like a state. And they, they have kind of clear lines of, of demarcation between what the, you know, the, the, for lack of a better term, the federal level does versus what the canton level does versus what the locality does, and so you you might go to certain localities or certain cantons that that have you know more laws, more regulations, more rules, but but overall there, there's a lot more freedom in that system rather than a centralized body. It is not a unitary yeah, state. Yeah, centralized body sitting at the top of the country, pretty much determining everything, and that is that is rooted in, in Swiss history that goes back. Hundreds
1: of years. Oh, it goes back like like basically a thousand years because they used to have what was called in Swiss history the Old Confederation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the one that Napoleon invaded and conquered yeah. 200 years ago. But after Napoleon was overthrown in 1815, Switzerland was reestablished and, and the new confederation was created. And Switzerland at that point was enshrined as a perpetually neutral state. It was created as a buffer between... Not as a buffer, but but it was established as a buffer between France and Austria. And um, that also, by the way, gets into Swiss um, uh, Swiss culture when it comes to defense and neutrality. Switzerland had been invaded and subjugated by the French during the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. And when it was given its independence again at the Congress of Vienna in 1815, Switzerland... Basically, from that point onwards was like, we are never going to allow ourselves to be invaded and subjugated by a foreign power ever again. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, Switzerland placed an extremely heavy emphasis on defense to the point that in, in both World Wars, Switzerland mobilized despite not being invaded. Swi- uh, Switzerland maintained conscription, still does. Um, Switzerland even mandated gun ownership. Yeah. actually mandated, mandated gun, gun ownership. ownership mandated gun ownership it was it was a legal requirement for 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 men to to have a firearm in their house and um uh switzerland also historically spent a significant amount of money compared to other european countries on its defense budget it still does um and and, and this um this legacy continues to this very day, which is part of the reason that Switzerland has a very low homicide rate, because how likely are you gonna to want to break into somebody's house <laughs> if you know that it is mandated under law that everybody have a firearm? Yeah. So, um now again, libertarians might have a problem with the whole conscription thing and the and the ownership of firearm thing being enshrined in law, but to to Nick's point, the the Swiss government structure, the way that it works is a lot of people don't know this unless they've actually gone, gone to Switzerland. There is no Swiss language. Switzerland is a multilingual, trilingual confederation. They're actually, technically, there's four languages because Romance is, is a legally recognized language in Switzerland that's kind of a mixture between Latin and German. But um, in Switzerland, there, there is no Swiss language. There's German, Italian, French, and Romance. That's the fourth one. Um, Nobody really knows about the fourth one, though, because it's basically only native to Switzerland. But um, what that means is, is that how do you keep a country together when your neighbor speaks a language that you don't speak? Yeah. Well, the way that you keep it together is you don't force your will on them. You allow your neighbor to live his life the way that he wants to in his canton, and you live on the other side of the country. Let's say you live in the French-speaking part. You don't go to the German-speaking part and try to run their life for them in, in the capital. You don't go to 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 Zurich or burn or anything like that and say, I'm gonna, you know, pass a bunch of laws to tell the German speaking part of the country how they should orient their lives. No, I they leave me alone, I leave them alone, and, and we come together at the national level and we only deal with things like monetary policy or defense or you know, foreign relations and customs and entry and migration. Well, if you, if you think that's about it.
0: if you think about federalism in the United States, that's what it was supposed to be. And you see a very similar setup within uh the Swiss government. They they have representation based off of of the cantons they have representation based off of half cantons and then they and then they have other that is, is more forms of like direct democracy um i also want to thank uh, cal for his donation thank you very much cal we really appreciate it. my and he mentioned uh our, our oldest daughter is going to be getting married and so thank you very much too for that um Yeah. So, so they, they actually have embraced a federalist style system. And and as Christian uh, mentioned, this is somewhat, it it wasn't just by, um, it wasn't by accident. It wasn't like they all got together and said, Hey, this would be a great way to do it. Let's, let's divide this up. No, it's, if you look at the, at the history of, of Switzerland, this made sense. This is how this confederation has, has operated. And by, by if you look at the <laughs> original intent of the United, the federal government of the United States, you saw something similar. It was the idea that the powers of the federal government are limited and enumerated, right? So not a lot of powers, and they were very, very specific on what they're supposed to do. And the powers at the state level are, are broad, right? State states actually do have a great deal of authority. It wasn't until later in kind of a reinterpretation of. Um, uh, oh, gosh. Uh, it was the legal interpretation that took place with respect to substantive due process and, and um, the idea that um, the Bill of Rights were actually limitations on state power, not just federal power. Most people don't know this. In the United States, the, the original, when you look at the Bill of Rights, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and all of that, those were limitations on federal power not limitations on state power. It wasn't until the 14th Amendment that they applied
1: to and, states. Well, and it wasn't even and And, even and it then, wasn't until later the Supreme Court started using it yes. all the time to make it apply to states. Yes. And there were some very positive it things from was the incorporation doctrine. Yes. There were some very positive yes. things from that, but there were also some negative things from it too. Yeah. The positive things are obvious, things like the Civil Rights Movement and stuff like that. But yeah. but the, the negative side is, is that this is how you get scenarios where the Supreme Court will come in and the, it routinely will strike down state laws under the 14th 14th Amendment, and in some cases where I think in many other conservatives and some libertarians would probably agree that, that some of these instances are inappropriate. Yeah. But the reason that it takes place is because of the stuff that you just brought up, Nick. So yep. what, what, what it suggests is that the U.S., and especially post-17th Amendment, the U.S. has been retreating from federalism. It, yes. We have not been embracing uh, increasingly, and you know this, it, it, Nick knows this from firsthand experience as a politician, But for those that are listening to us or watching us, you're probably watching us because you don't agree with what's going on in D.C. right now. (laughs) I have a very hard time believing that our core audience would say that they approve of what is going on with the federal government in Washington, D.C., and part of the reason that so many of us disapprove of what the federal government is doing is because a lot of us think that the federal government is doing things that it has no business doing. Yeah. And the reason it's doing things that it has no business doing is because we have increasingly replaced federalism with a unitary system of government where everything is done in the capital and states are basically vestiges that that you know have no real purpose or meaning anymore. And I just simply do not believe that you can run a country of 330 million people freely. Yeah, you can author- You can you can use iron fist authoritarianism. Look at China. They've got over a billion people and everything's run by Beijing. But you cannot have a free society of 330 million people. And have it be done at, uh, f- through a unitary system of government. Yeah, you can you can have an authoritarian unitary well, system and, of government, and, but you can't have a free unitary system of government with three hundred thirty million people.
0: And in so many res- in so many respects, one one of the reasons when you look at the way Madison talked about this and an organization of the United States is they they talked about the the existence of republics throughout history and. Part of the problem was is that once they got to a certain size, they simply became unmanageable. And the question was is how do you set up different jurisdictions of political power? Well, again, the Swiss Confederation is significantly smaller than the United States, but they have a workable model that, in many ways, is is similar to the United States far more so than than most parliamentary democracies that we oftentimes get compared to. And so, I, I think that's important because it does add, it does add this this element of kind of division of responsibility, respect for the fact that there are some things which unify all of us and there are some things which we are heavily divided on. And if you're going to emphasize that everything must be solved at the federal level, whether it's in Switzerland or the United States, the the larger it gets, the more people you are essentially disenfranchising from that process. Because you telling them, well, you had a vote, I guess you just didn't have the votes. Now we're going to impose our will on you. I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it at some point. Because one of the big things that we pointed out through all of this episode is freedom, and, and you see it, freedom is not exclusively determined by whether or not you have the right to vote. That may be an important component of freedom. It sure as heck isn't a sufficient one. So this is what I want to do now, because as, as we're looking at this with Switzerland across the board, go ahead and scroll down a little bit. Uh, you can see that the government consumption, tariffs, and subsidies... Look at the sound money thing. Yeah, there's sound money. The is Swiss like are across, known for their financial... Across cruelness. the board, <laughs> sound money. And this is the reason why... We have we have committed so many episodes to monetary policy, which is not always the sexiest or most exciting topic, is because it's one of the surefire ways to destroy a country. Uh, Because if you if you lose confidence in in the the means of exchange, um, everything just goes down from there. Like how do you you don't pay your police, you don't pay your teachers, you don't pay if you're paying them with like funny money from the government. These people don't show up to work. Right. And then all of a sudden you, you don't have mechanisms of exchange and that's where you get that's where you get collapse. Um, they, they don't score as well on tariffs. I actually thought Switzerland would have been a little bit better on, on the uh, the trade, but uh, still still OK overall. So well, keep 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 in mind again.
1: They're not part of the European Union.
0: Yeah, I get that. So, OK, next question is, is where do you guys think the United States ranks? Now, many of you have probably searched uh, looked up the index by now. The United States ranks 23rd. I remember when I saw that, I was
1: like, wow. 23rd. You know what's crazy? Look at the trajectory. So for those that yep. are listening to us rather than watching us, the U.S. has fallen 17 places in this century so far, since 2000. Yep. Over a 20-ish year period, they have fallen 17 spots. Switzerland, if you recall hasn't hasn't moved in 20 years. They've stayed at the number 1 spot except for a brief period shortly after the 2008 financial crisis where they were at number 2, right? But but other than that, they have been at number 1 or number 2 for the last 20 years. The US was once in the top 5. Yeah. or once certainly in the top 10. And I, they've just they've they've fallen off a cliff over well, the gonna, last. We're going to go through
0: and we're going to look at why that is. So un, under personal freedom, we're ranked 33 out of 165. Economic freedom, seven out of 165. And and here's where it goes. And this is the part two where I'm going to take some issues with with Cato. So under rule of law, they give us a 6.3, and our lowest score is under criminal justice. Again, I I think this is largely because of uh the drug war, um C- Cato. Cato generally believes in in um, gradual, if not complete, legalization uh, of drugs. Which I, I understand the economic argument they're making there. I understand the social argument that they're making there. Um, but they they also take some positions on criminal justice reform that I, I would I have a lot of problems with. Um, a lot of times we hear this thing was oh the United States incarcerates more people than in, anywhere in the world, and and sure that can be an indication of problems. I I, I would also say that we also need to take into consideration that. If you want to fix your incarceration rate, you can do it tomorrow. Just let everyone out of jail. Would it be better? No. So so let's at least be reasonable in the way that we look at this. For instance, I've carried legislation on criminal justice reform where I've said, look, if you committed a crime that didn't involve a victim, right? And, I, and I'm not, for, for the purpose of this conversation, the legal discourse, I'm not talking about self-victimization. Obviously, if you do something that hurts yourself, that's bad, all right, but when we're talking about victimization, I'm talking about hurting someone else. If you've committed a crime that got you like a felony or or a series of misdemeanors or whatnot that didn't involve harming another person, you didn't hurt them, you didn't hurt their property. I argued for automatic expungement, I think, within five years. So you you do your time, you get out of jail and whatnot, you, you don't reoffend. Automatic expungement, not just restoration of rights, automatic expungement. Because I, I'm a little bit more skeptical of laws which include prison time for which there is no External victim. What's
2: an example of that?
0: A lot of it has to do with drug use. A lot of it has to do with drug. So there, there's drug use and things like that that can get you felony convictions. Um, that I, I don't. I don't think necessarily. I, again, I, I don't think necessarily should should keep you with a felony record your entire life. Should keep keep you from voting. Should take away. It is kind of interesting when rights. they
2: when they legalized marijuana and we had people getting out of prison for possession of marijuana, and there was one guy that got out of the vehicle and just pointed at this huge billboard sign talking about local dispensaries. Yeah. And he just thinks he was like, I, I just spent 20 years in prison Yeah, and now they're just selling it at the store. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and keep it, keep in mind too. There's a lot of, there's a lot it's of stuff numbers. like that that I find very, there's untrust. a lot of numbers that they get thrown around this idea that there's a bunch of people in jail in the United States for like simple marijuana possession. That is not the case. I'm sorry. It just is not. Um, but I, again, so do we have work to do within our criminal justice system? Absolutely. Uh, but something tells me I probably wouldn't rank us at the same place that, that Cato does. It, it,
1: it, what it means is, is that we need to be careful what type of work is done, because as we've seen in blue states or states that briefly had blue state control, such as yeah. Virginia, the way that, that, that Democrats went about criminal justice reform in some of these states was quite frankly, extremely counterproductive. Yeah. in terms of public safety there's a difference between saying we need to make sure that the justice system is treating people fairly and and that we're not giving disproportionate sentences for things that are nonviolent crimes whereas yeah. uh, there's instances where people commit murder and they're sentenced to less in, in crime uh, less in prison than than people that don't do that type of stuff yeah. but instead engage in other activities there's a difference between saying, okay, you're right, we can we can work towards fixing that and saying, we're going to be soft on crime yeah. and treat criminals like
0: they're the victim here. And that, and that is essentially where I think I've seen a lot of this go. And it was primarily on the left, but I've seen it in libertarian circles as well, where I will sit there with fellow people that we have very, very similar political philosophies. And I'm looking at them going, wait a second, the person you're talking about hurt another human being pretty significantly. And this idea that, well, well why shouldn't they have the right to vote? Because they've actively violated the right of somebody else to be able to live their life. They've violated the non-aggression principle. And it's, well, if it's an essential liberty that, it's an essential liberty that that takes places apart uh, under condition of you operating in society in such a way that doesn't take away the rights of other people. And that's the part where I, th- I think sometimes there's a, there's a disconnect on some of this. I, I always say that when you haven't created a victim, I, I'm actually very sympathetic to uh, adjusting the law or looking at diversion programs as opposed to...
2: Well, the, the, the criminal criminal just, justice reform and or just, just the legal system in general, some of these uh, debt-to-society kind of things, like, oh, I've paid my debt to so- society. Well, if you do have a victim, have you really... Like, have you repaid what well, the victim lost, really? Because what I constantly see is that... They've maybe paid their debt to the government yes, but they have not paid their debt to the victim. And so society says they've paid their debt, but you still have a victim that is has lost everything in some cases or or is out all kinds of money. The government got what they wanted, but the victim still got victimized and it never got. Repaid. I,
0: I think there's. I think there should be a huge distinction between debt to society versus debt to your victim. In fact, I think if we put more emphasis on debt to your victim, we would actually be we would actually be organizing everything in the proper posture. Which is to say that it, it's yes, you you owe a debt to society in the sense that we had to have a a criminal justice system that because you violated a law that let's just say was a good law, right? Like murder, fraud, theft, burglary, you violated that, which means we had to have police to find you. We had to have um, you know, a, a court system to prosecute you. You got provided with defense and the whole deal. So do you owe something for all of those expenditures on behalf of society if you're found guilty? Yes. But the primary person that, that should be concerned here is the victim. That's the person that we should put the most emphasis on restitution for as a result of your actions. And it's the one that we should be constantly reminding the person that you're not here just because you broke a law. You're here because you hurt someone. Right. And we need to prevent you from hurting other people at the same time that we need to put greater emphasis on you actually providing you know, something restorative to the victim themselves. I've got a question that
1: I want to read off um, from Abby, and she said that um, she she said something along the Oh, here it is. She said, yeah, we went down pretty deep. What was the U.S. ranked five years ago? I uh, find that scroll, kind of
0: scroll up. Yeah, look at that. Like, so five years ago, we were in the we top, were 10. top 10. Five years ago, we were in the top 10. We dropped seven. Yeah, because the, Tyler other-
1: brought up that maybe this is just coincidence, but Tyler brought up that it's gone down heavily since the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Because we're, I mean, well, I, I want I, I to I know something. Lockdons.
2: I, I want to know something. C- can you go back down? Um, because law isn't the only one that was. Skewed movement. Yeah. What the heck does this? What Cato, are they grading on? Cato, the we don't have open borders. Cato, Cato is
0: <laughs> largely an open borders institution, so okay. they, they want they want larger freedom of movement across the border, legal, freedom and which of is movement one
2: of the, the reasons border. probably that we went down under Trump. Yeah,
0: yeah. I so, don't think it's the only
1: one though, because no. and we've talked about this on this podcast before that we're we're not afraid to criticize Republicans when we feel like that it's justified to do so, right? I, I, I like.
0: We're, we are not a Republican right. podcast. That's fine, but right? just,
2: just point to where it is. Like, well, the, what did he do that brought us down? Yeah,
0: no, no, I, I get it. Let, let's let's scroll down. Let's look at some of the other ones here because this will tell us kind of like where we're at on some This, of honestly, I think needs to go much
1: lower. Expression yeah. and information. I'm sorry, but direct attacks on the press, I don't believe anymore the United States scores a 9.8 out of. I mean, think well, about, think about this what is the older. FBI- This is
2: also older and everything hadn't come to light yet.
1: This is true. I mean,
2: all the Twitter files came out and showed like the FBI totally strong arming Twitter into.
1: That's my point that like, wait until their 2023 report comes out. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, like, because I'm absolutely convinced that that number is going to go significantly lower because increasingly we do not have a free press in the United States. We have a captive press. We have we have state. Journalists, we have a fourth estate that is basically working on behalf. So, yeah,
0: but what they're gonna, of the federal what they're, government. What they're going to look at what they're going to look at is is the laws on the books because that's that's the objective standard. You look at the laws on the books, and then what you do is you take instances of of the government using methods of intimidation. Now, I think the Twitter files. I think Twitter files are going to really hurt our expression and information rank, um, be, and they should because we we actively saw the government during um, a couple of administrations now. Uh, and not always at the behest of the Trump administration, but definitely the behest of of you know the Biden administration or the the you know the bureau excuse me, the bureaucratic state using their leverage to intimidate um private sector companies into censoring people. Uh, let's go over on this. So that's on the human freedom side. Let's go over. I have
2: a feeling we lost some yeah. under Trump due to tariffs. But. We did,
0: but it's not bad. Um, Certainly. The, the big one here, government consumption, transfers and subsidies, those are all issues. We're about in the
1: same places, like I think yeah. it was Estonia or Switzerland. No, actually, I think Switzerland beats us on this, but we're about where... Hamilton, could you go through some of these European countries? I want to see briefly what the comparison is on size of government versus some of them. So Ireland, it was about yeah. the same, although they're, the government their government consumption, consumption is, horrible. is terrible. Yeah. Um, uh, what country is this? This Denmark, is Den- Denmark, Denmark was way bad. worse. Yeah, even worse. Um, and then Est- Yeah, so we're about where Estonia is. Yeah. 6.3 for go- size of government, 3 for government consumption, 4.8 for transfers and subsidies, um, 8.9 for government investment, 7 for top marginal tax rate, and 7.8 for state ownership of assets. Now go back to the United States, Hamilton. No, nope, We're going to be, we're going to be getting into some of these in a little bit. Um, there we go. 6.8 for size of government, 6.5 for government consumption. So we score way higher than Denmark and yeah. Ireland on that. Um, 3.9 for transfers and subsidies, 9.2 for government investment. That's a good thing. We don't have as much direct government cronyism, state-run enterprises, for example. Um, five for top marginal tax rate. That's not great. No. Um, 9.3 for state ownership of assets. Can that's I, also say, nationalization. Say, that's, a, that's really good too. Here's
0: another thing too that I'm not, I, I mean, I don't know why they just went with top marginal tax rate. That that doesn't even begin to tell the overall story. And, and this is why we should also, we're also going to look at, uh, look, I, I know we've got a couple more things we got to, we got to hit on right now, but this is, this is kind of go ahead and scroll down some more on the United States. Let's look at something. So legal system and property rights, we, we score, you know, Pretty Pretty well, pretty well overall. Not perfect. Seven point six. The military interference. Let me look something up here because I want to properly understand what they mean by that because um, I was looking through some of these other ones trying to figure out, okay, what do you mean by my military? My
1: guess is, by the way, they do have a very, ind- for those that want to actually go through all 400 and something pages of this report, you can do it. And they have a, a description okay. where they go through each of the metrics and explain what it is. I'm willing to bet that the military interference stuff has to deal with the military industrial complex. So there we go. The, yeah, it is. The,
0: This component is based on the International Country Risk Guide, Political Risk Component, Military and Politics. A measure of the military's involvement in politics since the military Is not elected involvement even at a peripheral level diminishes democratic accountability. Military involvement might stem from an external or internal threat, be symptomatic of underlying difficulties or be a full-scale military takeover over the long-term assistance military government. Okay, blah, 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 blah. All right, let's look at this. They put military interference at 6.7. I'm going to tell them right now. I think they're, come on. I, don't get me wrong. I, I have an, I have issues with the military industrial complex. I have the I have an issue with um, and and I've worked in defense contracting. I spent the first eleven years of my adult life in the military, so I, I get it. But six point seven, we get a six point seven. Keep in score. mind.
1: Keep in mind though that Hamilton, click on on any other tab that we're not going to go to before. Do a keyword search for Myanmar real quick. <laughs> I'm curious. You're gonna M Y A N. M A R.
0: Which used to, j- okay. used to be Burma. Yeah. Press enter. It used to be Burma.
1: Press press enter one yeah, more time. One more time.
0: Okay.
1: There we go. Now scroll down. Here's Myanmar, country in Southeast Asia. Let's see what they 3.3.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, there we go. That- That's like a military <laughs> dictatorship. Literally right. a military dicta- they, they They were trying to transition to a multi-party parliamentary democracy. Actually, I think they were trying to have a presidential system. But yeah. they were trying to transition to a democratic system. And the military staged a coup d'etat, overthrew the government... And has now established a military dictatorship. Myanmar is in the middle of a civil war right now because the opposition parties are trying to overthrow the military. They're probably going to struggle really hard on that front, though. I'll say that. But, yeah, they're literally a military dictatorship right now. Um, I
0: I just I I think that, again, go back to the U.S. real quick. I I just think 6.7 is this is this is kind of Cato coming in. Through through some of this, um, integrity of the legal system seven point four. Okay, legal enforcement of contracts. Okay, regulatory costs eight point nine. I'm surprised that's actually as high as it is, but again, it's it's comparative. Um reliability of police, seven point eight. Man, the progressives will never buy that. So, okay, sound money. They're out of their dang money. I don't mind. believe this. They're at out all. of their dang money. They mind. scored
1: us way too high. We need to have like a seven or six on this score. I mean, this is just this. Nine point six Keep for those mind, that are listening. You guys, I know it's, this, it's 20. This was
2: twenty twenty was the Final year they were scoring. Yeah, but of in this. 2020, we, we printed $3
1: trillion. Hold on. It was more Hold on. than that. <laughs> it, was like,
0: it was like $5 trillion or They're something. They're taking
2: like that. into account 2015 to 2020. 20.
0: No, this should be. No, no, so no, this is, no. This is not five years. This is like two years.
2: 2016 right to 2020. No. Well,
0: I, don't I think, think it's so. even less than that. No, it's I think like, it's, I think it's a two year. Two years is, is like the. Okay, because earlier
2: I, I could have sworn that. So, that's what no, said. I
0: mean, this is, well, not only that, okay. Let's look at U.S. monetary policy for the last what fifteen I'm wondering, years. Okay,
2: you guys. What I'm wondering is, did all of that hit that soon, or it's been bad for a long tw- time? I get it, but the thing is, is that we didn't hit the accelerate button until 2020. 2019's when we discovered the whole. I would COVID argue thing. that everything got catastrophically worse in 2020 but like when did this study end it wasn't the full year of 2020 but, but it was probably the, the turn of 2020
1: we, it, it uh. was it, people forget they only look now in comparison and say man it's it's catastrophically worse it was catastrophically worse in 2019 when it is, it has been increasingly getting worse and worse with each passing year, and it really picked up in the 2008 crisis when the Federal Reserve, I, like I understand, its, it was really,
2: really bad. It's balance but sheet, like at no other point. This, it covers it for Had we shut down the entire? Government, the entire economy, I, everything. But I
0: don't care if they were saying, okay, And then comparatively- they flooded
2: the economy with a bunch of money in order to try to counteract But they it. did
1: that in 2008, too, is my yeah. point. They flooded the no. economy with money in 2008. Remember, we did a podcast last year where I read off a direct quote from Ben Bernanke from a paper in 2011 where he says higher stock prices are going to translate to more economic growth. And how are we going to get higher stock prices? By printing money and having the federal government inject that money into the marketplace right. in order to drive asset prices up. That so is direct you, you would know, inflationary you would know monetary this policy. Question. Here's
2: the question. Post-COVID, like due to COVID, did they print... About the same amount of money as they printed in that time.
1: Give me
0: like 30 seconds and I'll pull up the history of the Fed balance sheet. I'm
2: just curious. I'm not trying. I don't know the The, answer to
0: that. Here's the part where, again, I just take some issues sometimes with with Cato and Frazier on this, is that I feel like sometimes their bias is coming in here a little bit, where they're going to rank us as a 6.7 on military interference into our go- like i'm sorry i've got the sheet does, by the way hamilton mean, can you bring it up does this mean the defense contractors have an undue influence on on policy in the budget sure 6.7 right if, and then but but then when it comes to sound money and money growth we're at that way too i'm high. sorry that needs i'm to, sorry that's just i i told i i i, I'm I understand you're trying to give them the benefit of the doubt like okay did they stop like mid 2020 did but if you're gonna tell me these are the scores from 2020. Okay, well, we printed $3 trillion. So this
1: chart right here proves that we do not get a nine-point anything no. when it comes to sound money. This is a chart, for those that are listening, this is a chart that is showing the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet over time. If you go back to the beginning of the chart, Hamilton.
2: Okay, but do you this see is what, is what I'm pre- talking collapse. about right there? Look at that. That's pre-2008.
1: The Fed's balance sheet was under a trillion dollars. Boom. Boom market collapses in 2008. Look at that. It shoots up to 2.2 trillion, but that's only QE1. Hamilton, if you keep scrolling, this is QE2 right there where it jumps up again. And then finally you get QE3. Well, really at that point it became in some ways QE4. Um, where it, From what was it? From like about 2012 until 2016-ish, the Federal Reserve just printed, 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 printed. So what you see, but look, but this look is at all post-2008. What I'm saying is, is that QE1, 2, and 3 were all in direct response, direct response, not even indirect, direct response to the 2008 financial crisis. So what you see, Hamilton, go back to 2007. We'll pull up the numbers but, there. It, it, it's, it's 900 billion to now go to, say, 2015 or 16 when QE3 finally finished and the Federal Reserve stopped printing money briefly. It went from sub-1 trillion to over $4.4 trillion in in the entire totality of the story of the 2008 financial collapse. And then the Fed started slowly trying to draw down its balance sheet
0: in a failed attempt right, to do so in 2018. which 2020,
2: which I think is when this chart came no, out.
0: No, no. They include 2020 number. I mean, unless I'm reading this wrong, they're saying- Look these at are
2: 2020 the, down there.
0: Thank you. No, that is th- that is the beginning of 2020. See that big jump there? That's within 2020. Okay.
2: Do we not know the date so that this thing came out? four point
1: Hamilton, go right. Okay, so about $4 trillion and change. Go to the peak of the end of twenty. It's That's by June.
2: Yeah, so to when the did end this of study come out?
1: Stop, stop, stop. You're, you've gone too far. Um, a little bit back. A
0: little bit more. Some more.
2: My question is... When did they end this study? Because that could explain this.
0: Okay, the way I'm reading it, it looks like they're including all of 2020. All of 2020. But what Christian's pointing out is like, okay, let's say they weren't. Let's say they were counting two years. There's still problems with the way that they're they're looking at this. So the math is in twenty twenty in
1: one year, the Federal Reserve admittedly, they did more in one year than they did in two thousand eight. But in one year they, they printed did three in trillion like a span dollars. Of five years. But consider the proportions. Think about the size of the Fed balance sheet in, in two thousand and seven versus where I, it was in I get 2015 it when you raise the percent it out. increase. Okay versus where it was in 2019 versus where it was today. The percent increase in some ways is just as catastrophic as it was in 2008. And that's my point with... Look, I mean, I think we've gone through the topic a lot. The point that I'm trying to make and that I think Nick is trying to make is that our financial situation when it came to sound money was atrociously bad even before 2020. And all that 2020 did was take a... it took a, a five alarm house fire and it dumped, you know, 50 you know tankers full of gasoline on it, yeah. is, is they, what it they did. They say,
0: okay, the compo- this component, money growth, this component measures the average annual growth of the money supply in the last five years minus average annual growth of the real gross domestic product in the last 10 years. Country where growth of the money supply greatly exceeds growth of real output received lower ratings. So a- again, if we're, if we're talking about this comparatively with other countries, yes, central banks across the country were all printing out massive amounts of money. What I'm saying is, is that, and, and again, I'm trying to give Cato the benefit of the doubt here. What I don't understand is that the way I'm reading this is it looks like it includes all of 2020. And I don't see how in the living hell we get a nine okay. on, on sound so money. So the way
2: I thought it was, was from this date, from you know 2016 to 2020 is what I thought we were looking at, not, no, not encompassing all of 2020.
0: I, I, I the way I'm reading this, I think this includes 2020 because you need to understand this is the index that was published in 2022. Okay. All right. So this is why. I, I Okay. Anyways, let's go. Let's go back to America again. And look at the rest of the scores here real quick. Okay. Uh, movement and capital and people 4.6. Again, I think this is just kind of their issues with. <laughs> this is this we is want a, open borders this this is the part where it's like a, a part of me our credit market regulations are, are actually lower than a lot of the other people on here and that's partially because there's been so much regulation around credit markets um in part because every time there's a problem with this it's perceived as well the issue is the greedy private sector but there's usually always a, a bunch of you know the u.s is also the financial
1: capital of the entire world yeah I mean, we we are the global banking system, basically. Um, not the, the Swiss actually do play a large role, although recently Credit Suisse just went under. I remember when we did a podcast about the banking system in October, and I brought up that like Credit Suisse is on the brink, and Deutsche Bank is on the brink. I think Deutsche Bank is also being bought out too, but I know Credit Suisse has already been acquired. So, I the really the regulation thing when it comes to like credit market regulations, I, I actually understand that overall regulation we score relatively high. Not yeah. honestly we should be scoring higher on regulation than we should on sound money oh yeah i
0: agree i i I agree
1: i mean even though it's not like our regulation system is perfect and it's getting worse over time but our regulation system is in a way better standpoint than i mean our our fiscal monetary position right now i think is just absolutely atrocious yeah
0: well I i want to go to i want to go over to um we got some other ones. We're not going to. I don't think we have time to get to these. Singapore. Singapore ranks incredibly high in economic freedom and low in they personal are, freedom. They are. eighty-one out of one hundred and sixty-five in personal freedom,
1: but they're number two. Yeah, out of one hundred and sixty-five in economic yeah, and, freedom. And it's
0: and 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 again, it's a it's an, a very very prosperous. They
1: blow us out of the water in terms yeah. of economic freedom, but they look very authoritarian in terms well, of personal they're, freedom. They're, compared their their compared to security
0: us. and safety is very very high. Their rule of law is very very high. Scroll down. Um, we'll just give you an idea of a, a country that has very high economic freedom. So this is where it comes to, like, freedom of assembly, civil society repression. This is the part where they kind of are like a, a uniparty state. Um, there's really only one political party. Scoring
1: only a 2.7 on freedom of assembly. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. that's so quite they, bad. They, they but they then, the, uh, Hamilton, if you scroll over... Yeah. And freedom of, of expression. expression and information, yeah. direct attacks on the press. That's really bad media ex- and expression 4.0 direct attacks on, on the press is 5.6. Yeah. It's it. They do not score very high on personal freedom, but Hamilton, if you scroll over to their economic freedom,
0: I mean, <laughs> like, th- like off the size
1: truck. of government, 7.2 yeah. top marginal tax rate, 10 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like apparently, they have extremely low taxes. Yeah, they Singapore. don't do well on
0: state ownership of transfers assets. and
1: subsidies. They are not a welfare state. No. Government investment. They are not state well, ownership. Here's the, here's the interesting. They thing do have some state-owned properties. Well, they're
0: they're also they're also but essentially a city state. Like that's the that's the thing to keep in mind here. They they are essentially a city state. Um, Regulatory costs nine. So so you got to figure they they're they're creating and passing laws uh, and decisions for what's essentially a large city. Um, the the other thing to take into account here. Go ahead and scroll up here a little bit. When it comes to things like transfers and subsidies, um, w- w- what's really important about this is they have they have a social safety net, right? They do. They they have. Um, retirement accounts. The difference is is that they don't have the government managing the retirement accounts in the same way that we do social security. It's still a mandated retirement it's account. It's still a mandated though, retirement but account. But it's mostly privately oriented. Yes. And, and well, and that's the thing is because it's privately oriented, one, the money's not sitting in some sort of government account to be transferred to other people and operating like a Ponzi scheme, which is what social security operates like. Sorry, Conrad and everybody else. It's just the truth. Secondly, Instead of money sitting, and again, a government account doing nothing except either subsidizing spending or just going in straight transfer payments, that, that you, by the way, a benefit that you lose when you die, you know, a portion of it can transfer to a spouse. Instead of that, now you're actually accumulating real wealth because your money is being invested in the private sector. And, and generally speaking, in much you know, kind of safer, slow growth. It's also used um, to fuel Singapore's economic
1: boom because people are investing for their retirement into the Singaporean economy. And and
0: when you and when you invest in the private sector, you don't die, or or when you die, that money just doesn't just vanish and go somewhere else. It goes to your heirs. And so all the people all people, all the people in the United States complaining about a lack of generational wealth. Well yeah, you picked Social Security right? Because that's what you, I mean, we're all claiming that that's what's keeping everybody out of poverty right now within the United States. Whereas they've actually got a private sector version of this.
1: By the way, they have the same thing in Australia. It's called (sighs) the super fund. This is why Australia scores higher than the United States on, on a lot of these categories, despite the fact that when we think of Australia, we also think of, we we think of draconian lockdowns during COVID. We think of a socialist state. Currently they have like the labor party in charge and they're very left-wing, but Australia's retirement system, is
0: way more free market
1: oriented than the United yeah. States is. So They're, I
0: think Chile has got to submit yes. one of that as well. But yeah, it, and here's what's interesting. People have actually gone and done the data on, okay, if I put the same, when social security went into existence, if I had put the same amount of money into, I think it was just the New York Stock Exchange average, right? Because every time we talk about this, like, oh my gosh, Republicans or conservatives want to put your money into Enron stock for your retirement. like no moron nobody wants to do that Just put in the S&P 500 oh my gosh if you would have followed the New York Stock Exchange average you would have retired with 2 million dollars let me ask you something you're going to get that out of social security checks no you're going to get as much social security checks as you possibly can until you die and then it goes away it's not generational wealth where if you have 2 point you know whatever million dollars in the account and something happens to you that 2 million dollars isn't going to taken by politicians to redistribute it goes into your own family's you know, wealth and ability to accumulate wealth. So if, if Democrats and liberals and leftists are really serious about generational wealth in this country, well then maybe we'll actually get us off this, you know, uh, this social security system, which is run like a Ponzi scheme by politicians who should not be managing anybody's retirement. They're really good at managing their own. I've noticed just not everybody else's.
1: Oh, notice how, how all the time, I mean, People get elected think, to Congress and then they become multi-multi-millionaires. You think Elizabeth
0: Warren is relying on Social Security and her dotage? No, I don't think so. She's investing in the stock market. We know that Nancy Pelosi is investing oh in the my stock market. Anyway, Nancy we,
1: Pelosi is the greatest stock picker in the history of the United <laughs> States Congress. It's, it's incredible how your knowledge of the stock market, you go from being Jim Cramer to being Michael Burry the second that you get elected to office. Yeah. It's so funny how that works out. Have, so, we have a question from Harrison here. How would these countries rank without the U.S.? In other words, how much is the freedom in these countries contingent on the U.S. thriving?
0: Uh, that's, it's a good, so the
1: defense blanket in Europe matters because their welfare welfare systems would not exist the way that they do otherwise.
0: And then U S so I'm always careful when I say something like that, because I don't like the argument that a lot of socialist users like, oh, the only reason Cuba's poor is because of the U S has tariffs. It's like they're allowed to trade with the rest of the world. Right. Are, Are we, are we it? Are we solely responsible for Cuba's failures? No. So I think that obviously the U.S. Is, is a dominant economic political power. There's a certain degree, and this is the part where Cato would probably lose their mind if I said this, but if we look at it all historically and comparatively over time, U.S. military dominance ha- has at overall, on the whole, been good for the world. That doesn't mean we always get it right, but overall it's definitely... Here's my question. If there's going to be a dominant military power, what would you prefer rather than the United States? Wilhelm Germany. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. What, what would you prefer rather? So like let, let's think. Imperial at this. Japan. Right, yeah, but, no. But <laughs> but the United United States obviously being a, a huge um you know uh, source of, of consumption of, of global products. So you you would have to look at how much is the trade of a particular country tied to the United States. Obviously the US dollar, dollar is also the world's reserve currency, so that factors into it as well. But I, I think we got to give credit where credit is due. Countries which embrace free market economics, private property rights, they, they don't have the government trying to micromanage every aspect of their economy, they tend to do much better. And, and the examples of this are places like Singapore and Hong Kong, which have relatively Relatively very very few natural resources. I mean, you could you could argue they have they are, they're strategically located in Singapore stance from uh, around the Malacca Straits and one of the major uh, trade hubs in the world. Uh, Hong Kong has a port, right? Other than that's that, that's it. They're
1: not sitting in the middle of one of the. No. Singapore has the advantage of sitting in the middle of literally the busiest shipping lane in the entire world. Yeah, but Hong Kong doesn't have that. However, Hong, I'm glad you brought up Hong Kong because. Yeah. Before well, well, we, wait, we started real, the episode, I wanted to... Put real hum- cool. We had a questionnaire I want to get to, so I okay. don't want
0: to go down another track. I want to answer this question. I want to get to another question, then we can go into something else. But the, the answer to your question is, is the United States providing a certain degree of, of um, I think, security to um, the world, especially when it comes to our, our allies and our close trading partners, I, I think does make a difference. I, I think the American ability, uh, consumption ability... And I, I don't say that as a bad thing. Like, oh, we're you know too overly consumers. I'm just saying we we have a lot of rich people comparatively. Again, look look at all of these other countries we've we've mentioned today. All of them have populations significantly smaller than the United States, and the vast majority of them also have what you might call. Um, I'll just keep it at that. They're significantly smaller uh, populations. So we're, we're not we're not talking. Once you get into other countries which actually compete with us anywhere. Uh, near on the same side with with, you know, population or demographics or things like that. The United States does well. Like this is one of the things to point out is that as much as we're frustrated with the direction the United States has gone on the whole, um, it, it is still across space and time done an incredible job. We're just very concerned about current trends. Uh, we have one person, uh, 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 Mihai Sander asked question, can you please take a look at Romania? I'm curious. Absolutely. Let's bring up Romania real quick. Just you can just do a Yeah, put that in there. So where does Romania land here? Okay, there zoom, we go. So um, s- scroll
1: out. Zoom out just a little bit.
0: So Romania's ranked 38th, 38th. They've uh, actually risen
1: 26 spots since yeah. 2000. Wow, that's
0: impressive. 26 spots since 48th in personal freedom. Um, 19th in overall in economic freedom.
1: Their uh, biggest issues, according to Cato, are rule of law, yeah. movement. Um, it's not as high on religion as it probably could otherwise be. Um, they're, they're an Orthodox country, I believe. Hamilton, could you zoom out again? I'm, I I, want to be able to look at all the, um, scroll down just a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, looking at the numbers, it, it looks like their biggest issue on the personal side is, is, um, expression and information, religion, movement, scroll up just a little bit. And then rule of law is the big issue. Apparently, they've got some problems when it comes to procedural justice, civil justice, criminal justice, and then rule of law. So...
0: On and, the political
1: it, side, that's that's an issue. But other than that, they well, actually I mean, score quite well
0: on a, on everything else. Personally, what's interesting is their economic system is the same issue. It's their legal system. So essentially, what what economic system is not that government bad. Government consumption no, it's, it's, is really high. It's not that it's not like that it's bad. bad, bad but me. if you look at the legal system and property rights, right, they're they're point six. That's their lowest score on the economic freedom side. And so basically, what what. Cato, the conclusion Cato's coming to, and Fraser, and whoever else is assisting with this, is that really it's the legal system in Romania that's kind of holding it back, both on a personal freedom and on an economic freedom side. Because overall, not doing bad, and and to, to rise twenty six ranks since two thousand is is pretty significant. Because at that point, you're talking that's that's you know, roughly ten years after ten years after they yeah. shot. Chalcescu
1: on yeah. <laughs> on live television on yeah. Christmas Day. Um, actually, it's it's quite funny. Romania has a similar story to like Poland in terms of like the way they view communism. They do not view leftism, hardcore leftism, especially yeah. communism or Marxism, in a positive light at all.
0: So we got some other people asking us for uh, other countries to look at. So let, let's let's do one more, and then I want to go to. Can we please look at Hong Kong as a, a sure. story of
1: of what happens when you allow an authoritarian regime to take hold? Because Hong Kong for the longest time was in easily the top five in the world in terms of freedom as late as 2012, they were vying for the number one spot in the world in terms of freedom and look at where they are in the last decade. They've dropped
0: 26 spaces in the last 20 years. I mean, that is
1: incredible.
0: Yeah. Well, actually 26 spaces has really only been in the last like roughly 10. They, they, They were in
1: the top 10. 20 years ago, and they were almost number one as late as 2012. And now they're number 34. And the story is, I mean, look, in terms of economic freedom, they're still number one. That's going to change eventually, though, because people are fleeing Hong Kong in droves. Hong Kong will eventually lose its status as the number one freest country in the world in terms of economic freedom. But personal freedom, the reason they fell off a cliff, and by the way, this includes the 2020 national security law that was passed in Hong Kong. And so th- this explains why it, it, they've just fallen off a cliff. I mean, it's as simple as the Communist Party wanted to take control over the city politically. They already had control over it in terms of foreign affairs and defense and stuff like that. And they collected taxes, but that wasn't enough for them. They wanted to run the city the same way they run Beijing or Shanghai. Well, they got their wish, but they killed
0: the golden goose. Yeah. And and that's going to continue to be a massive problem. Um, let's... um. I'll tell you what. Let's. I want to go. I want to look at another index here really quickly because we, we got we got a little bit more time left. And I just want to do this. Let's bring up the Heritage Foundation. Now, Heritage Foundation's e- index of economic freedom, twenty twenty three. So this is very updated. I will say this. Um, a- again, I like a lot of the research Cato does. Cato, please work on the interactive. You know, interactive part of of that data. It's going to help a lot because one of the reasons why I naturally go over to Heritage is because not only do I I like the way that they actually rank things. But, um, I also really appreciate how easy it is to use this website in order to find what you're looking for. Um, so when you look at the country rankings here, um, go ahead and scroll down a little bit. So you got the countries that are free. Those are countries that score, uh, an 80 to hundred. And he's got the, they've got four countries here that scored that it's number one is Singapore. That used to always be Hong Kong it used to always be Hong Kong. It was Singapore, number two, Switzerland, number three, Ireland, number four, Taiwan, uh, that's interesting. I don't know if, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, now again, this is just economic freedom. They're not looking at Taiwan is a very pro free market country. It, it fact, is. But what it, I'm curious is I don't know if they actually rank it need the to, other one. We
1: don't need to go through the list, yeah. but Hamilton, we do have the tab for Taiwan pulled up. If you just want to want to look at the ranking, it's the next one. It's the next tab. This is Taiwan overall. They're 14. This is Cato. They're 12 on personal freedom, which is quite high. They're number 24 on economic freedom. So this is where you get Cato some, thinks yeah. it's a little bit lower, but... Well, I think this is also... I, I don't they've know. also risen 14 spots over yeah. the past is it, years. Isn't
2: the Heritage one slightly more recent?
1: Yes,
0: the Heritage one is more recent. And you so see since a,
1: 2008, they've really jumped up. This is yeah. the th- th- this is the Cato one. So going back to the Heritage one, I'm actually not terribly surprised that Taiwan is as high as it is. Oh, no, I'm
0: not either. I'm not either. They, they've really embraced free market economics. So, so you see a lot of crossover here in New Zealand, Estonia, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Finland. This is another thing. Whenever somebody tries to tell you that the Nordic countries, Nordic socialism works, it's like, you know what's the best thing about Nordic socialism? There's a lot of Nordic, but no socialism. (laughs) Where's the U.S. on this list? 25th. So we're, we're below so we're, we're, we're
1: Norway, ge- Finland, Sweden, and Denmark, all, all the four Scandinavian we're below, countries. We're below
0: the Czech Republic, the United Arab Emirates, Lithuania, Iceland, Cyprus, Latvia, Canada, South Korea, Germany, Australia. And, and again, a lot of this has to do with, with I, I think they properly ranked us. Go ahead and click on the United States on this one. I know we got a question, too, about Albania. We'll, we'll go to this one. Overall score is 70.6. Like, we're barely hanging on to mostly free. The trade point. thing really hurt us. Um, well, no. Government spending destroyed us. Wait, Look at how do you terrible, terrible our ranking It's tax is burden, home. government spending. That's what hurt us. Um, we're, we're moving up in trade freedom. Um, The government spending thing is so bad. Oh, yeah. Our monetary freedom, we went down. We
1: got a 49.3 score out of 100 on government spending. That's really bad.
0: One of the things that keeps the United States going strong is property rights. Like, I can't emphasize this enough. Which the left is attacking the most out of all of
1: these things. Yes. If we did not have – here's the thing. If we did not – if we had the level of property rights that they have in some of these other countries around the world – but everything else was the same. The US would not even be in the top 25 in terms of economic freedom. We would be like number 50. Yeah. We would be extremely mediocre um, it, 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 on, on on that ranking. The property rights thing or the thing that makes the United States exceptional compared to so many other countries around the world, because usually we treat property as it's yours. You have a right to do with it what you want, with some exceptions, unfortunately. But we take property rights very seriously in the United States. Unfortunately, the left does not at all. And that's probably, out of all these things, other than spending, that's like probably one of the top things that they hammer away at the most on the economic side.
0: Well, like our, our business freedom has gone down, monetary freedom has gone down, government integrity has gone down, actually, pretty pretty significantly judicial effectiveness that's not surprising government, government spending just fell. government spending, is is below 50 it's just really bad at this point um also we had one we had uh, somebody in the audience ask I, I apologize i'm going back and forth here we had somebody in the audience ask about albania um to give you an idea albania don't i already looked it up over here albania on the human uh freedom index is ranked 47th it's 58th in personal freedom 26 in economic freedom um but yeah, just to give you an idea where that's at. and it's remained, it's remained They've been flat water. over over twenty years. Yeah, not a lot of movement. Uh, it has gone up five places, um, so that's significant. But or that's something. But um, what's
1: it? You know. It looks like their biggest issue is rule of law. Yeah,
0: that, that in that is that that is that has been kind of like the. The, the the lagging indicator and in a lot of this, and you see it on the economic freedom too it's it's the lowest on the personal freedom and it's the lowest on their economic freedom aside so like a court system that people have some faith in and that is able to operate reasonably effective and efficiently so th- this is another thing and that, independent of the political process yes th- this is another thing that that's very very important when you're looking at this you'll see ranks like impartial courts and things like that is is the court legitimately independent of the political process and then secondly like, is, is it a co-equal branch of government or is it largely subservient to the the politics? And then the other question is, is it not only effective, but efficient, right? If, if your court system is effective, which is to say that it generally comes to the correct conclusions. Oh, I was about it, to say the Chinese court system is effective. <laughs> if it generally comes to the right conclusions, but it takes a decade to get there. Well, your business might already be done at that point, right? Like you're, you're, you are you you might have already lost your home. You might've, so it's important that it be both effective and, and efficient. Uh, but yeah, Christian's right. If it's overly efficient, but not effective, then what it does, <laughs> is it comes to bad conclusions very quickly. Go back over to, um, go back over to the, um, um, yeah, the. That one, okay. So there, there you see kind of where the why the U.S. has fallen to the spot twenty-five. Like I remember, for as long as I watched this, the U.S. was usually always in the top ten, maybe sometimes the top ten, fifteen. But the fact that we're not even in the top twenty is pathetic. It's The government spending, that it really has is, really killed us. Go to the next one over on Heritage. I want to do one more thing here because again, this just shows you how. Like, scroll out. This kind of shows you, again, one of the things I really like watching about this because you're going to see this allows you to do Explain like Explain what this map is for I'm our listeners. I'm going to. Listeners. This allows you to go out and, and actually look at kind of like the overall trends across. And you kind of, it, it's easy to see which countries, um, and you're going to see a correlation between economic freedom and political and personal freedom. Um, it, you, it it's almost impossible to find a country with a great deal of economic freedom that also doesn't have personal freedom, although Singapore, you could argue, is, is something of an exception there. But if you have a country with no economic freedom, there's no political freedom. It, it, like, I mean, this is it, it, Milton Friedman used to talk about this, and this is so important when you hear people on the left telling you that what we actually need is more government control over the economy. If you want to destroy personal freedom, if you want to destroy political freedom, start giving the government more and more control over your economy, why? Because if the government effectively controls all of the things that make your life meaningful to you, being able to raise your family, being able to get a job, being able to get education, being able to get healthcare, if the government controls that, then all you're, rooting, all you're voting for is the people that control you. That's it, that's it. Freedom is not, you know, freedom, freedom is not democracy, right? Democratic processes may be essential to a free society; they're not sufficient. So, let's look at something. Um, let's go ahead and look at this map here, real quick. And then you start to click on this, so you can look at overall score. Go ahead and click on overall score. That one right there. Staying gray.
1: Yeah, that's the problem with this is that it can be bugged out. Oh, Hamilton, oh man, if you reload the, um, if you if you reload the um gosh
0: dang it heritage i was just talking about how great it was yeah it's, all right. it's very buggy so click so right now so you click on overall score all right click on property rights see if that works okay there we go. so property rights what, what do you see all right so now we, we all know the wealthiest countries in the world all right we've gone through the political free ones and so where, where did they were they pretty much all located in western europe and north america
1: And and Japan and Australia and South Korea. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, and and Japan, North Korea, or (laughs) South Korea, (laughs) not North Korea, New Zealand, (laughs) Australia, Japan, South Korea, right? It's all right there. Singapore is that little green dot there uh, south of Malaysia. So that's where you got, right? And you're going to notice a coalition between property rights and wealthy countries. Now look at judicial effectiveness. Once again, you're starting to see drops in judicial effectiveness within the United States, and that's having a corresponding effect on our overall overall economic output. But it's the same map almost. But you also, yeah, it's almost the same map. Now go to government integrity. All right. Same map. The trends are the same. Tax burden. This is the part where you're going to start to see some changeover, right? <laughs> where, where you see
1: the the second world and the third world have a much lower tax burden. <laughs> yeah. Now, some
0: people go to like, oh, well, you got to see, look, it, it higher taxes yeah. produce greater economic. No. 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 That, that is the wrong conclusion to draw from this. Uh, look at government spending. Same thing. You got low government spending, but in some of these countries, it, it, comparatively, it's, it's because, because they, they don't have, have, have no tax base. Yeah. And they uh, have no tax base either. But Okay. But yeah. go to go back to government spending. All right, now here's what's interesting. You see all those countries that are red. Now again, you could come to the conclusion: Oh, see, government spending leads to wealthier societies. Look at this look at is, Ireland.
1: Look yeah. at Singapore. Look at South Korea. Look at look at Switzerland, even which is the yellow part of Europe. The rest of Europe is red. There's only two parts that isn't, and that's Ireland and Switzerland. Well, there, there's two things to
0: take into consideration here, right? The the countries that, which are significantly wealthier have more money to tax to and therefore spend. Yeah. Right. So when, when you're looking at some of these like, oh, well, gosh, these, these countries that don't spend much are economically poor. It must be because of a lack of government spending. No, they, they don't have much to take in the first place. They don't have Chad much to is not poor because it's
1: not spending money. Yeah.
0: It's not spending money because it is poor. It's poor. So the, the problem though, is that when you look at these countries that are not doing, like they are not doing well in the government spending, what that should actually, what actually speaks to is an indicator that in the future, they're probably going to run into some other problems. Look at fiscal health. So government spending, these are all red, fiscal health. All right, now you see kind of a, a breakdown, same company, Same. a lot of the same countries that are having problems with your government spending are also starting to have problems with your fiscal health. What's
1: interesting is that it, w- the Eurozone is very heavily divided. The, the yeah. typical countries you see in the news, Italy, Greece, Spain, France, the countries that are constantly in fiscal crisis, right? They're all red alongside the United States. But then you have countries like Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Germany, Switzerland, Ireland, Maryland, they're the fiscally healthy countries yeah. in Europe. So it's, ju- it's just an interesting breakdown. Yeah. It's like the U.S. is just as red as Greece, unfortunately, under yeah, this chart. Well,
0: because some of these, when you look at things like government spending, again- We if deserve you, red. If you don't, yeah, we <laughs> deserve red. But if you don't have a lot of money to spend, then you're not going to have much. Go to business freedom. Okay, once again you're going to see a strong correlation here, right? So there's a lot of freedom to engage in entrepreneurial endeavors. There's a lot of freedom to engage in the sort of things that create wealth which actually generate a useful tax base. Then let like me finish this let me finish this part. Okay. This is really important. All right? If Scandinavia truly was a socialist country, there's no way they would score this high in business freedom. There's no way they could, because what is socialism? Socialism is the abolition of the private ownership of the means of production. What does that mean? Businesses are the ones that own means of production. It's capital projects. It's factories. It's plants. You could also add distribution in that. That's your trucks. That's all that stuff. So look how high their business freedom is. The only reason they've ever been able to sustain an expanding welfare state is because of good property rights and business freedom. But again, if you don't get your government spending under control over time, you end up expanding the dependent base without expanding your economic base. And when those things start going in opposite directions, when you start impeding that flow through greater socialist policies, you end up with a catastrophe. Look at labor freedom this is another one that kind of stands out. Yeah, the U.S. stands out here. But here's another thing that's here's another thing that's kind of interesting. Your labor freedom in Scandinavia, which, again, if they're socialists, right, workers of the world unite, if they're socialists, their labor laws are actually more um, are closer like, to the United States than, than the rest of than Europe. Than the rest of Europe or the most of Europe. What, what I find
1: interesting is that Austria and Italy have relatively uh, – yeah, yeah. have the closest to the U.S. in terms yeah. of labor laws. Look at monetary freedom. Oh, look yeah, at that. Look go. at Scandinavia yeah. again. Oh, yeah. Switzerland, or, or um, not Switzerland, Sweden and Finland actually score higher than the US yeah. in terms of monetary so freedom. Is the, yeah. Switzerland also scores higher than the US. So does Singapore.
0: Go look at trade freedom. Yeah. Norway
1: has very high yeah. trade freedom, even Invest, though they're not
0: part of the European Union. Investment freedom, yeah. Okay, real quick, go back to that because that's a good point. There's this whole idea that the reason why one of the main benefits of being a part of the EU was was the trade freedom component. And when the UK was leaving, I mean, look at UK has higher trade freedom. W- one of the arguments they were making is like, look, we can have greater trade without tying ourselves. Politically or even monetarily, we can we can still facilitate good trade agreements. But that was one of the things they were trying to use to to punish the UK uh, for for leaving the EU. Go ahead and go to uh, investment freedom. So again, this is this is very very important. You you can you can be fine on your your one of the reasons why you know they might be better on government spending when you have things investment freedom. Again, when you start talking about building generational wealth over time, when you start talking about once you start punishing investment, which here's what you should read that as wealth taxes. You want to know which country in Europe had a, would really toyed around with a wealth tax? France. And France saw a, a, I mean, just millionaires started leaving France and drove, I think they lost something like 42,000 millionaires in France. Where do you think the main source of your investment? for all of those startups come. Where do you, where do you think Oh, it comes from the government. Where, where do you think middle-income people that are trying to start a business, where do you think they get their investment from poor people? No, no, it comes from the government. Yeah, Nick. the government just produces yeah. it. Yeah, this I, is it, a What's great.
1: interesting though is that France is still light green and yet they suffered tremendously when they heavily raised taxes and basically punished investment. Yeah. Now look at like Venezuela on that list. Yeah. Or China, like like I mean Ch- China's a good example. Like Look at how Alibaba was treated by the government and how um, American investors pulled out of China when the CCP really started cracking down on them. But notice how, again, Singapore, dark green dot in a sea of red, basically. Europe is still relatively high. The U.S. is relatively high. Canada and the U.K. relatively high. Scandinavia again. You see Sweden and Finland
0: and Denmark. Very high. I'm sorry, but none of that. None of that screams socialism. Like none of that. They would not be appearing on any of these if they actually had a socialist government. Now go to financial freedom. That's the last one we're going to hit. All right. And then, you know, again... We, Finland and Swiss, uh, it, in it, Sweden again it's, it's with just, the U.S. It's just not hard to see. So, okay, let's let's kind of wrap this up. Here's what all of this means. And the reason why we wanted to do this is because we wanted to talk about why has the United States slipped the way it has? And obviously it has a lot to do with the lack of faith with respect to government. Government spending has gotten horrendous. And, and one of the reasons why the government spending is an indicator of future economic problems is because the more your economy is essentially dependent upon... Um, government spending the more the government is going to engage in bad fiscal policy and the more they're going to engage in bad monetary policy so a lot of these countries where you see trends of good fiscal policy good monetary policy all right that's also followed up by greater business freedom greater per- property rights and what you're you're doing is you're creating a society where you are free to engage in economic transactions with other people that are also free to engage in those economic transactions instead of constantly looking over your shoulder to figure out what the government is going to do next. And it's not just a question of the government you know, meddling one year for next. What you're looking for is a long tradition year after year. You want year over year of the government not being heavily involved in trying to manipulate the economy. right? If, if, you, if you jet back and forth year after year between different political parties if there isn't a tradition of property rights if there isn't a tradition of federalism if there isn't a tradition of greater economic freedom then you're going to you're going to be lagging behind those countries that actually have it and what is so scary about what's happening in the united states right now is that so many of the the bad problems that we're seeing within our economy so many you know young people are out there going like i can't find a job i can't buy a house i can't move out of my mom's basement i went and got the college degree just like i was told to i went and did all this stuff and it's not working for me the reason it's not working is because the government is the one that took over your federal loans the government is the one controlling your education healthcare prices are through the roof great what is one of the what is one of the industries within the united states for which the government is most involved healthcare They manipulate that marketplace all of the time, right? They're, they're spending more and more money. They want to tax more and more money because they can't print it anymore without massive inflation problems. And yet doesn't matter how many times I sit there and talk about how the pro the economic problems you're experiencing are not because of a lack of government intervention. It is because of an excess of government intervention. And we see it no matter where we look across the world. It's not unique to the United States. It's unique wherever it's tried. So the misdiagnosis is the problem right now. The more young people that have become convinced that the the real enemy here is greedy corporations. You know what? That might be true insofar as those greedy corporations go to the government in order to get special privileges or subsidies. But your solution should not be to like, oh, I guess we just need to have better politicians. no, no. It's to take away the ability for those politicians to manipulate the economy by taking away your individual rights to invest, by taking away the power of your dollar by engaging in bad monetary policy, by taking away more of what you earn by, inverting, by um, eroding property rights, by making it harder for you to start a business and engage in voluntary exchange with other people by infringing on business freedom. By constantly manipulating the labor market through its constant interventions, all in the name of helping people, when in reality, they're making it harder for people to be able to get jobs, especially people that need the job the most because they need to develop that sort of economic experience, economic experience. So, again, if, if you want to know why the trends are going in the direction they are, it is largely, it is because of government an increased government invention into the economy, and it's not going to be solved. By just hiring better managers of the economy, it's going to be solved by hiring people that recognize that their position in politics is not to micromanage the economy, but rather to create the sort of environment where people are able to use their time, their resources, their property, their investments in order to better their lives and engage in free exchange. Does that mean it will always produce the same results? No. In fact, it's guaranteed not to. Because people have different objectives. They put in different levels of effort. But in a free market, you're able to find your place so you can balance your objectives with what the other people in the economy need. And if you try to replace that with politicians deciding what you need based off of their political incentives, you will not get a better result. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter how smart the politician is. It doesn't matter how altruistic they may be. They don't contain a fraction of the knowledge necessary to be making those decisions. But you know who does? Millions, billions of free people working in voluntary cooperation within the marketplace. It is always going to achieve better results and the numbers play that out. Once again, thank you very much for joining us on making the argument. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for um, the information and, and the different comments and whatnot within the comments section. Thank you for the donations. We really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. By the way, this was another episode that was influenced by our members on Circle. So if you, don't only, if you want to not only enjoy what we do here, but you actually want to play a role in selecting the sort of topics that we go over and influencing that, please move over to Circle. Engage in the conversation over there. Also, you can get updates on uh, the various, various people participating in our 90-day challenges with respect to making yourself more formidable, both within, with yourself, within your family, within your community, within your country. Once again, thank you for joining us and we will see you next episode.